Coming up, they aren't just the red hot million dollar picks. They aren't just the smoking hot million dollar picks. They're not just the smoldering hot million dollar picks. They are the hotter than the equator million dollar picks. It's all next. This episode of the Bill Simmons podcast is presented by State Farm. If you ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game. And they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right at first half of the first game. I don't know, West Coast time, that's usually about 5 o'clock, 5.30, perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. We're also brought to you by The Ringer and The Ringer Podcast Network. We launched a new podcast this week with Danielle Smith. It is called Black Girl Songbook. The first episode is up. It is about Whitney Houston's iconic national anthem performance at the Super Bowl 30 years ago. I remember watching this in college. I have it as the second greatest national anthem experience of my life. I still have Marvin Gaye at the 93, uh, the 83 All-Star Game uh, for NBA and Philly first, Carl Lewis third, and Whitney second. So there you go. Anyway, really good podcast. Go check that out. Don't forget to check out Sports Cards Nonsense as well. Uh, rewatchables, we have... Potentially two rewatchables podcasts coming next week. I'm just flagging this now. One of them has a very special guest who uh, who happens to be famous. So there you go on that. Don't forget to check out the Ringer NFL show because they're going to be coming probably right after the Super Bowl, much like me and Sal will be if you want to hear Kevin Clark and Nora Princiati. Kevin Clark did a great job on Slow News Day. Um, did a whole bunch of interviews this week. If you like that show, you can check it out on our YouTube channel or on our Twitter as you call it. Um, that's it. Coming up, Peter Schrager, our good luck charm, million dollar picks. And then Casey Affleck, who's somehow never been on this podcast, talked about a whole bunch of movie stuff. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, taping this, it is 2 o'clock PT on Thursday. The good luck charm is here. Peter Schrager from Good Morning Football from Fox. Um, now he's just known as the good luck charm. We have had one of the great runs, I think, in the history of podcasting. Last three weeks, 7-0 and on my big playoff bets for million-dollar picks, 9-3 and against the uh, spread, picked all 12 winners of the actual games, made $3.271 Fake dollars. 
This it's is what a, are, you must be getting stopped in the street in New York, just constant uh, attention for this. It's crazy. They're, they're, I live in Brooklyn. There's hipsters with a little mustache and they have their own typewriters at home that they use and they're stopping me. They're screaming from the streets about million dollar picks. Um, in all honesty, I, would, I mean, Mark Marin did Louis C.K. twice and those were epic. You and Kevin Durant, those were solid. Um, serial, the original serial podcast history. I think we're in there, man. It's Mount Rushmore stuff. This is how I feel. And the best part is each week we've talked it out. We haven't necessarily agreed, but at least we've gotten to a good place where I felt like my angle was strong. Um, the Super Bowl is going to be a beast. We're going to get to it in a second. We have a lot of props and stuff too. And I'm going to, we'll, we'll bat it around. I have a specific angle I think I'm taking, but there's still time for you to talk me out. Before we do that though, let's play a little uh, QB carousel. We had McVay finally uh, got rid of Goff last week, last weekend which I think we had predicted on this pod. This was probably not looking great for Goff. Now Watson might be out there. The The Raiders might want somebody. Garoppolo. It just just let's stop the carousel for one second. Tell us what's going on. All right, let's start with last week. I wasn't on the million-dollar picks, but this was happening throughout last week. Uh, it was reported out there, but I don't think enough really got enough press about it. So McVay checks into a resort in Cabo last week um Chilino Bay that might be where you guys roll I I've never heard of it it's one of these top high-end resorts in Cabo he gets in the villa he's texting me from his villa during the NFC championship game he's watching he's with his fiance they're having a great time Tuesday Matt Stafford rolls in and checks into the same hotel this is on Tuesday wow <laughs> now from what I'm told Drew Brees was at this hotel Sean Payton was at this hotel Andrew Whitworth was at this hotel and there was nothing nefarious going on, but the second these things start heating up, McVay and Stafford are in Cabo at the same time on the grounds at the same hotel. So they're not allowed to really technically talk, and they didn't from what I gather. But when this thing started coming together, um, it became obvious that this was the guy that McVay had his eyes on, not Watson, not Rodgers, not something like Stafford is who he wanted. So he's going way hard at it with the Rams front office and they love Jared Goff. And he's saying, no, like, look, Jared Goff, we had a nice run. It, we're not getting any further than we are right now. And the two of us, it's run its course. It's obvious. He kind of strong arms the front office and says like, let's make this happen with Stafford. Now on the other end of it, the lions, they've had their, their they've had their 11 years with Stafford. They never won a playoff game. He was injured this year. They want to start complete rebuild. Their number two in the, in the front office at Los Angeles was a guy named Brad Holmes, who is the new GM of the Detroit Lions, they hired him. Holmes drafted Jared Goff, and believe it or not, and I know people scoff at this, is a huge Jared Goff fan. Loves Jared Goff, and is like, wait, Jared Goff, we can get him for Stafford, and they're gonna give us two first round picks? If you're of the belief that you like Jared Goff, think about this trade. Not only do you get a quarterback you like that's 25, and has been to the playoffs, and has been to the Super Bowl, and all this stuff, you also get two first round picks, usually, you would have to trade two first-round picks for a former number one overall pick who's not washed up. So Holmes is like, all right, we got to go. Carolina gets involved, right? Carolina offers a very sweet deal, one that might have involved a top 10 pick from this year, um, which would have been back-to-back -back the seventh and eighth overall pick. If the Lions kept their seven pick, they get Carolina's eighth pick, and maybe Teddy Bridgewater too. So now there's some offers. Denver calls. Indianapolis calls, Washington calls, and I'm told the Washington deal was really strong. All for Stafford. 
And at the end of the day, Stafford was like, I'm thinking I want to go to San Francisco, Indianapolis, or Los Angeles. And the Lions were so sensitive to not ruin this relationship because the way it ended with Calvin Johnson, the way it ended with Barry Sanders, that's not how they want to start this new regime. They're like, let's work with Matt Stafford. Let's make this happen. And the fun, weird inside connection to McVay and Stafford that predates any Cabo festivities. When McVay was in high school, he was a high school quarterback. He was like a running option quarterback. And the rival high school had another running quarterback, a guy named Chad Hall. Chad Hall went to Air Force, ended up playing in the NFL. He was with the Niners. When they went to the Super Bowl, he was with the Eagles for some time. And is now the wide receivers coach in Buffalo and is like really highly regarded. Chad Hall, Sean McVay, tight since high school, buddies. They're all in the coaching world. It's none of those deals. Chad Hall's sister is Kelly Stafford. So McVay has known Matt Stafford for years through Chad, and it's his sister. So Stafford and McVay have known each other. They've been in the same social circles. This thing comes together. And from a football standpoint, he's all in. And I spoke with him throughout last week. I spoke with him this week and it's basically like are we living or are we existing it sounds like a Matthew McConaughey quote or something but it's this is it put it on me it's on me I'm the one I want to I wanted Stafford I wanted to get rid of Jared Goff you can put all the pressure on my shoulders and let's ride and at the end of the day Detroit was like we don't want to piss Stafford off we think we like Jared Goff and that's the trade there there's been some good pieces about it too especially on the ringer.com a great website nice. uh, about the Rams just basically looking at this model of how everybody builds a football team and saying, fuck it. We don't value first round picks. We value yeah. right now. Um, we'd rather get known quantities. First round picks maybe aren't as valuable as everybody seems to think they are in the NFL. It's no different than what happened in basketball. And in basketball, it's kind of run amok. People now, you know, they're, they're not just worried about two first round picks. They'll give away like seven. They don't care. Um, it, it's either going to be a beautiful disaster or they will have stumbled upon a new way to do this. Not the only way to do it, but a way, you know, or they're just like, fuck it. We don't value first round picks. I kind of wish the Patriots hadn't valued first round picks the last four or five years because we didn't really make any good ones. Well, that's, um, that's the point of it, right? The Patriots are always picking in the back quarter of the draft and it's hit or miss. At that point, once you get to like 20, the difference between the 20th overall pick and the 60th overall pick is really dealer's choice. And, you know, talking to the Rams guys, Clyde Edwards-Alaire went 32. Um, DeAndre Swift went like 36. They got Cam Akers at 52, and they liked Cam Akers. Like, and that's just what it is. And in the draft, if you are convinced you are a playoff team and you believe in yourselves and say, okay, we're built for playoffs. We got Ramsey, we got Donald, we've got, of course, now Stafford. We got all this, this, this high-end stuff. We don't plan on having a top 10 pick. So what are we valuing if it's a 23rd or 24th pick every year? We don't really care. By the, by the way, not, those other ones. not much different than how Belichick handled it when he would trade out of the first round every year, but he yeah. would trade for multiple picks and not, you know, current assets. Yeah. Um, I get, you know, who knows if this deal will, will be considered a home run or triple, double, single or strikeout. I, I guess for me, I would like it more if Stafford was 30 or 31 instead of 33. I liked it for Detroit. I thought it was smart. You know, I, I, I really thought it was an inventive deal. They're not going to be good anyway. I think Goff's worth a flyer, not too crazy. What happens? I, to me, this has no effect on the Watt. This was its own trade. Yeah. It's, now you can't say, oh, well, Watson, how many picks is he going to get? This is, you can't compare them. And that's, um, that's what everyone's saying. It's the apples Watson, and oranges. Yeah, the Watson thing. He's got a no trade clause. And, 
you know, I was trying to think if I'm running the Texans and Watson, the way players can put pressure now through social media, mm-hmm. they can also, they can also say, I'm just not going to show up for the season. Um, you can't really mail in a football game the way, uh, Jimbo slice mailed in those rockets games before he got traded to Brooklyn, James Harden. But, um, if you're Houston and you're already a shit show, you, you kind of want resolution on this. You also have some awesome suitors, you know, and you have the, the jets and you have the dolphins. And if the Raiders got super excited, you have mystery team X. God only knows who's out there. Um, I would assume they're trading him. And right, I actually so, think it's the, it's the right move. What do you think is going to happen? A couple of things here. So first of all, everyone you're mentioning and anyone who says like, well, we haven't picked up the phone. They're lying. Everyone has called. And everyone has been told to a man by Nick Casario, the former Patriots front office guru, who's now their first year GM, who, by the way, signed a six year contract that makes him one of the highest paid GMs in the league before even doing a single deal. He has told them he is not for sale. This is as of February 4th that no, he's not even entertaining Watson offers. So anyone who's putting all those trade machine offers together, like it's not, it's almost premature to do it because the Texans are telling everyone he is not for sale. We're going to work this thing out. So then it goes back to, well, what the hell went wrong? And from all accounts I get, it happened because people would say, well, they traded away his best receiver. No, he signed a five-year extension worth 100-something million after they already traded away DeAndre Hopkins. So chronologically, that's not why he's upset. What he's upset is there were conversations with ownership multiple times, and he was given word that he would have input on some of these hires. And he didn't. He did not have input. And by the way, he should have had input. Well, that's the question, right? And, And I spoke to another executive who put it this way. He's like, in another year... If you wanted to say, oh, come on now, like you're a player, we're the front. Do you know how easy it is to get on Zoom for two hours and interview someone? It's not that you don't have to take a flight. You don't. If he if he gave you a list of three GMs and three coaches, you could have interviewed him. You could have, and that's what I think is so. Like, it's not lazy, but it's almost like just inconsiderate to tell him we are going to value your opinion and you are going to have input, and then to not even get on the Zoom. Now the name that keeps popping up is that Robert Sala is the guy that that Watson uh, hypothetically suggested and Sala didn't get invited to interview on a Zoom with the Houston Texans. Do you know how easy it would have been to, for McNair and whoever else to just say, all right, we're going to interview Robert Sala as one of the 15 candidates that we've interviewed. They didn't. Well, so but, but wait a second, though. How many guys in the league actually are at the input level? Zero. And I'm not saying... Well, Zero. But, but, but I mean input, not like, hey tell us who we should hire as a head coach, but like, Hey, Deshaun, we're looking for a head coach. Like, we just wanted to talk to you about it. Um, and just, just keep you in the loop on that. Like, I don't think it's that hard to do. How many, it's like Mahomes, it's Watson. Are there three other guys? You know, it's like, I think Larry Fitzgerald has a significant voice in Arizona. Honestly, I I don't know if all these quarterbacks, like, like Brady, Brady didn't have much say in New England. I don't, <laughs> Brady you know, I don't, had zero say. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm saying. If Brady doesn't have But it, I think it, Manning had say in Indy once upon a time. I think they, they ran stuff by him, especially perhaps. like with free agent signing, stuff like that. But like, you know, the other Manning, Eli, I don't think he had a say in who was being quarterback. Like, I honestly think it's very rare. I don't think they do give – and Rodgers certainly wasn't involved at LaFleur. Like, I, I don't think they do that that often. And that is why this was – to say that you're going to bring in Deshaun – 
and then to not, I think he was really insulted. And, you know, this, Cal McNair is not his father. Um, he's, he's been, and he's inherited this team. And I think they're, this is going to have to be one of those deals where they have to really try to repair this thing because the next step is, all right, get to March. And now this quarterback carousel starts going around and Indy finds a quarterback and Washington finds a quarterback in Denver. And now suddenly the seats are getting filled. Then the draft comes and maybe the jets take a quarterback and maybe, you know, well, there's uh, like five, there may be five QBs in the first, what, 16 picks. Yes. And like Carolina might take a QB and suddenly these seats are getting filled. Houston, if they don't get anything for Watson, well, then we're in real trouble. And the new CBA is interesting because one of the small fine print things that someone called out to me was, you can find these players for years and they used to do it for holdouts. And then at the end, then like a pat in the back, they'd say, all right, here's your money back. We signed a new extension. We figured it out. The new CBA, apparently you're not allowed to give that money back. Like if you hold out and you are fine for missing practices and missing workouts and missing whatever else, the teams by the CBA are not supposed to give that money back to the player once he does show up. So if they really want to play this hardball and I, it's dangerous game. The Texans can find him up to something like $3 million before the season starts for missing things. And then they still have the franchise tag three times after a five-year deal. So he signed that contract five months ago. I am so fascinated how it plays out. But, like, they're right now not listening to offers. They're confident that they can work it out with him. All right. So we'll do QB carousel quick. You just have to give your pick. I'm going to give you a team. Okay. And you can say a player or you can just say rookie for who you think their quarterback is going to be uh, in September. Okay. San Francisco. By the way, hold on. Before we do this, let's do it. So when I shout out the teams, if you go like seven for seven, it'll be the most amazing YouTube clip of all time. You'll be like, you'll be like, you're a geller, like putting a spoon on your nose. Yeah. Um, Okay. All right. 2021 September, the quarterback of San Francisco will be. Jimmy Garoppolo. Okay. New England. Mac Jones, rookie, Alabama. Oh, I was gonna. I, you could have just said rookie. Okay, Mac Jones, Washington. Washington will have a rookie quarterback. Houston. Deshaun Watson. Miami. Tua Tunga Vailoa. Okay. Um, Indianapolis. Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz. I don't know. I don't think so, but I think that's fun. Washington. Did we do Washington? We did Washington. There was a report out today that, that, uh, the Eagles have gotten calls on Wentz. I'm not, uh, you know, I don't think it's the league is batting down the doors for Carson Wentz, but I would be intrigued to see if Frank Reich did make a call. I mean, they're, they have a giant hole at quarterback and they got a really good team. Indianapolis is fascinating to me. They went after, Stafford and did not land him. Bears? Bears is really interesting because I heard they want to be super aggressive. I just don't know who's out there besides Watson that they're going to go after. So I'm going to say rookie with the Bears. And then Carolina, I guess, would be the last one. Rookie again. What veteran didn't we mention? Uh, I think we're good. Let me ask you this, though. Darnold. Darnold is interesting. How about the Chargers call Houston? Herbert straight up. Herbert straight up for Watson. We'll throw nothing else in. That's such a good trade. It's my favorite fake trade. I actually got an argument with somebody recently about it because I actually think the Chargers should not do that. I think for what Herbert showed this year on a rookie contract, I think that's the single most valuable thing you can have in football is the cheap quarterback. I would much rather have that 
as great as Watson is, I would rather have Herbert, but it's a great fake trade. Cause if I'm Houston, you're giving me Herbert for Watson done. Let's call it in. I don't yeah. need anything else. You don't even have to throw in like a seventh round pick. Herbert was so good this year. So good. He was so good. He might be better than Watson by next year. Like he's that good. Mm. Watson's really good. The, the, uh, the question, I think Schefter tweeted it out, which is interesting. If you're Jacksonville, do you trade the first overall pick, Trevor Lawrence, for Deshaun Watson straight up? No. No. Because what I, I'm putting him in the same situation he was in last year. Yeah. Deshaun, by all accounts, by all football metrics, had an awesome season, and he, he went 5-11. and 11. Yeah. Like at some point, if you're on a bad team, that's just what your record's going to be as a quarterback. You're going to be five and 11, six and 10. It doesn't matter, you know, how many cool things you do. All right. We are going to uh, circle back after this break, and it's time to talk about the Super Bowl. Let's go. And inch our way toward the million dollar picks. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Summer is all about fun vacations, but I know that being away from home can be stressful. So many things can happen. That's why I like to recommend Simply Safe, award-winning security that can help give you peace of mind when you're away. The only thing you should worry about while you're on vacation is having too much fun. Having my home, it's great. Couldn't work better. I think Simply Safe is the best because it comes with a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras, sensors to detect break-ins, fires, floods, and more. It's backed by 24/7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. It's given me, my family, many others real peace of mind. I'm waiting to have it too. Try it out. A 60-day money-back guarantee. No contracts right now. Get 20% off any Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash BS. That is Simply Safe with two S. Simplysafe.com slash BS. There's no safe like Simply Safe. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is gonna be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. All right, let's talk about this game. I've thought about it. I've stared at it. My initial take was Chiefs minus three, layup. I don't want to go against Mahomes. I don't want to go against Kelsey. I don't want to go against Tyreek Hill. All the things we talked about two weeks ago as we were crushing another week of million-dollar picks. Um, Been staring at it for... 10, 11 days thinking of worst case scenarios. I can't get past the chief's offensive line. I'm just going to walk through this for, for you in America. Yep. Left tackle, Eric Fisher gone. Right tackle, Mitchell Schwartz gone. Right guard, Laurent Duvernay Tardif. Is that how you say it? Yeah. You know, right guard. He's gone. He opted out before the season. Left guard, I'm going to have trouble with this one. Kalecchio Asimeli? You got it. Close enough. Left guard, he's gone. Four of the five guys they thought they had before the season are no longer on the Chiefs offensive line. Mike Remmers signed off season as a backup. He's now our left tackle. Quick mm -hmm. Mike Remmers background. 
signed with Denver as an undrafted free agent in 2012. Played for eight different teams in nine years. <laughs> Six of those teams cut him from either their 53-man roster or practice squad. He was the right tackle who got torched by Von Miller Two and a half in the sacks. Super Bowl, as has been recounted many times. That is Mike Remmers. Now, this year he is not allowed a sack in 2020. Andrew Wiley, who is a guard and kind of like a borderline backup fill-in guy, is now the right tackle. Yep. of the Kansas City Chiefs. And then Stefan was Wisniewski? Two-time Super Bowl champion. Waved by Pittsburgh <laughs> this season. Picked up by Kansas City in late November. Signed off the scrap heap. He's their starting left guard. And the more I think about this, I think of this makeshift, pretty crappy offensive line. I wasn't that impressed with their offensive line when these guys were healthy. I thought they had a lot of holding penalties, a lot of... You know, just in general, it's always like, eh, is this the same offensive line as last year? And now you're going against this Bucks team that has Todd Bowles, who I think has been one of the breakout stars of these playoffs. Going to do a bunch of blitz, disguise blitz, fake pressure. Oh, suddenly there's not pressure. He's got the two awesome linebackers, David and White. He's got the front four. Now that our guy V is back, that's going to be able to potentially just do the four-man rush every once in a while. And then JPP on this on one of the sides, wherever he decides to line up, I I don't think they're going to be able to block the Bucks. What do you think, Schrager? Okay, let's go through that offensive line again. Remmers has been a journeyman. He's been good this season. He's been good this season as a right tackle, which as is the right inferior tackle. tackle position when you have a right-handed quarterback filling in for Schwartz. All right. Nick Allegretti will be at left guard. He's been good this year. He's been solid. Austin Ryder was their starting center last year. He's still their yep. starting center. He's the only incumbent. Wisniewski, who was cut by Pittsburgh, was their starting left guard last year in the Super Bowl, so he's no stranger. And Wiley's been solid. And I go back to this. They've got one of the best offensive line coaches in the league, and Andy Heck, and... This team adapts and adjusts no matter what. We've thought about it 30 times that this is going to be an issue. When Duvernay Tardif opted out, I thought that was going to be an issue. Didn't miss a beat. When Damian Williams opted out, didn't miss a beat. They lose Clyde Edwards-Hilaire for a month. They don't miss a beat. This team is one of those squads that are champions, and their whole entire deal is adjust and adapt. Now, I love JPP, and he had the quote of the week. First of all, I don't know about you, Bill, but I feel like there's zero buzz around the Super Bowl whatsoever this week. It just feels I can like, never, in a pandemic, I never know what the buzz it, is. It's yeah. a pandemic, so there's no one down there, so there's no, like, media blitz. It doesn't feel wall-to-wall, and yet I think it's the best Super Bowl maybe in two decades on paper. Like, I'm so excited for it. Me too. And JPP was asked about Mike Remmers, who he has faced multiple times in regular season games, and he's like, who... I don't know who that is. I've never heard that name before. Is that who their tackle is? And he laughed. And I'm like, I need that. I need a little bit of that. Like, just give me something. That is old school. That's not love fest. Gronk and Kelsey telling each other how great they are all day long. And Brady and Mahomes just waxing poetic on the other. The Buccaneers defense is not nice. They are a mean group. Vea does not smile. I've interviewed him multiple times. Vita Vea has never had a grin. Sue is Indomitian Sue. He's still the same guy. As much of a polished image he's had and Jason Pierre Pell wants to wants to destroy him. So they've got this front four that is fantastic. The linebackers are great. And yet Kansas City doesn't miss a beat. And I've never seen them all of a sudden have an offensive line collapse. Mahomes throws the ball too fast, gets it out of the pocket so easily. 
And Andy Reid is aware of their issues on the offensive line, and I am confident and that team that they can adjust. Is that a good enough counter to all those injuries? I'm going to give you an example of when their offensive line was barely holding on and borderline collapsing last year in the Super Bowl. It's true. San Francisco pressured him that whole game in a very similar situation to this year, I think, where they have good pass rushers, disguise blitzes, all kinds of things, and can play some tricks. I really like this Tampa defense. And even last week at the Packers, they end up, they give up 26, but like their secondary is banged up. All those guys are back now. Um, yeah, Jamel and you Dean have, is an interesting name. He didn't play in the first game. He's their fastest defensive back. He will be healthy. Again, not a household name, Jamel Dean. But they have him, and he can keep up with Hill at the very least because, remember, Tyreek went for 203 yards in the first quarter last time they played and ended up having two touchdowns in the game and did a backflip uh, into the end zone in their building. So I think Jamel Dean's a huge addition, and Winfield, from all accounts, is going to play, which was a late scratch last time they played Green right. Bay. So there's a couple of things I don't like for the Chiefs. One is I really worry about their offensive line. Two, I don't think they run the ball very well. And I've just never really been impressed by it. And and I think with this Tampa team, um, I think they're going to have trouble running the ball up the middle and around and doing stuff like that. I also think you can run the ball on the Chiefs, yep. which is not a controversial opinion. So you look at this and you think, if I'm picking the Chiefs here, I'm doing it because it's like, oh, Mahomes. Can't go against Mahomes. This is how one of the ways you get in trouble with football gambling year after year, where you basically do the I don't want to bet against this guy strategy. Um, Rodgers has been like that for years on Green Bay. I don't want to bet against Rodgers. Meanwhile, the other team's better. Couldn't you make the case Tampa has more talent? Like if you're just going to say who has the 12 best guys on each team, who has the better 12 best guys? I think Tampa's 12 best is better than Kansas City's best at this point. Okay, so that's depth. That's quantity. Let's rank them. Let's rank the top 10 players in this game. I would go Mahomes one. Yep. Kelsey two. Kelsey two. Brady you might three. Say, you might say Hill three. They have the top three. And, I, and you there might be a world where you give Tampa like nine of the next 10. That's fair. But if you're going one, two, three with those three guys and you assume that Tyron Matthews is going to make a big play, Frank Clark's going to make a big play and the defense can do their own. What if Hill and Kelsey just go bonkers again, which they can. They did it last time they played them. I, They're not letting Hill go bonkers this year. He had that, that, that's the one thing. But I know, but it was a fuck up. If they didn't learn from that, Tampa doesn't deserve to win the Super Bowl anyway. Yeah. I, I just think they're going to Belichick the Hill thing. They're just going to be like, you're not beating us. Three guys on them and let Sammy yeah. Watkins and McCall Hardman beat them. Let Watkins, Hardman, let your Pringle. mediocre running backs. Yeah. Let we're gonna we're, we're not gonna let Hill and Kelsey beat us. So I look at these two. I look, looked at three games that I thought, what are like the doppelganger games for how to beat this Chiefs game? It came down to these three. Kansas City 31, Carolina or KC 33, Carolina 31. Do you remember that game, though? That game was crazy. I watched it. I watched yeah, it. it. was a crazy game. Kansas City 27, Tampa 24. Kansas City 22, Cleveland 17. Yeah. All right. So we're going to throw out the Tampa game because I think they're a different team than they were. And, and Mahomes lit them up. I don't think Tampa's defense is the same. The Carolina game. Carolina had 31st downs. Yep. McCaffrey, McCaffrey basically his only game. McCaffrey was amazing. 76 plays. Oof. They had nine drives. They only punted twice. 38 time, of, 38 minutes time of possession. 
McCaffrey was basically 151 yards and 28 touches. Teddy was 36 for 49 for 310, two TDs. And what happened? Mahomes was just awesome. And he throws for 372, four TDs, and Carolina misses last second. And on a Joey Sly, I think it was a 67 yard attempt at the end. They went for it. Um, almost got it. Yeah. Almost this it. Bucks team, compared to that Carolina team and some of the same stuff, can they run the ball? Can they have long drives? Will they have a quarterback that controls the clock? Can they con- convert third downs? Can they make plays on third and seven, third and eight? The answer is yes, 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 yes. Like, I'm not the first person to say this. You don't want to punt more than how many times in this game if you're Tampa twice? Yeah, I mean, yeah. If you're punting more than twice, you're in trouble. One, I would say the combo of turnovers and punts can't go more than three. That's fair. Correct? Yeah. So the Cleveland game, Cleveland 17, KC 22. Cleveland, 21 first down, 60 plays, two turnovers, eight drives, zero punts. Eight drives. One of those drives, the guy, and I count this as a turnover, the guy fumbled it out of the end zone. Higgins. But they had long drives. They ran the ball. They controlled the clock, I think, with a way inferior team. Um, They rushed for 22 for 112. They kept Hill and Kelsey 16 for 219, but, you know, no Mahomes for the fourth quarter. I think it's if if Tampa wins this, it's a cross between that week nine Carolina game and that week 18 Cleveland game. Long drives. They can't they can't be choppy, weird Tampa. They got to make some third downs like they did against the Packers in the first half. And the difference is they can't have turnovers in the second half. That's the recipe. Let's go back to Saints Buccaneers divisional round. Remember, Saints were controlling that game and Jared Cook has an all time gaffe. Chiefs don't make those gaffes. Let's go back to last week. Rodgers is in the red zone, and it's all right. We got four ta- four shots from the nine-yard line. Incomplete on first down, incomplete on second down. Third down, he doesn't run. He throws it, and then they kick a field goal because they're not sure. And essentially, LaFleur, whether he would say it or not, is like, well, we gave you three shots, and you didn't get a yard. Why should I suddenly think you're going to get it from the nine-yard line now? The Chiefs always convert those. Like These are little things, but you have to remember – when I say, when I when you say, well, the one reason is Mahomes. The one reason is Mahomes is because he's that amazing, and we have never, in our long history of watching him, three seasons as a starter, he has never not shown up. Even in that Super Bowl last year, where for the first three quarters it looked like he didn't have his A game, he was had as good a fourth quarter in the Super Bowl that anyone's ever had. Hitting the wasp play is one thing, but the Watkins pass was amazing, and his elusiveness. I feel like I can't, in good faith go with you betting against Patrick Mahomes in a huge game. Not until I see him lose one of these, at least one, in some situation other than the AFC Championship game a couple years ago where it was his first big playoff matchup with Brady. And he heated up. He heated up pretty hard in that one. Chiefs run rush defense, 31st DVOA. It's not great. They are, according to Bill Barnwell, the worst team in the NFL at stopping opposing rushing attacks in power situations, like third and short or fourth and short. Uh, Tampa rushing by the week, 29 for 142 against Washington round one, 35 for 127 against New Orleans, and then 24 for 76 against Green Bay. Not quite as effective in that game. Why wouldn't they be able to run the ball, control the clock against the Chiefs? Take out Mahomes. Let's talk Tampa offense versus Chiefs defense. Why wouldn't they be able to have long drives and keep Mahomes off the field? That's the the Otis Anderson 
theorem, right? That's what the the Giants did to oh, the Bills. Oh, seven Giants. Yeah, both Giants. Yeah, that was a Mod Bradshaw and Brandon Jacobs that year. But it's run the ball and just keep them on the, off the field and just convert on third downs. You have to be really disciplined to do that. And the Bucks were really disciplined throughout the playoffs doing that. Are they going to be able to be disciplined enough to say third and four, third and six, third and five? We're okay getting in those situations as long as we're ticking time off the clock. I don't know, because in the second half last week, last time against the Packers, that wasn't the case. And Brady was throwing ducks all over the place like you that, that is cold, going to be there. That cold weather, pass, physical game. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And but the little pass, the little dink and dunk to Jones and Fournette will be there. It always is. It's whether Brady and Arians are going to be disciplined enough to say, hey, if it gets us the win, we're good with it. I don't know if this if Mahomes is coming out and scoring and doing this that they're going to be willing to say all right we need to slow down the pace we're not getting in a track meet with them because on paper everyone looks back to last year's Colts and Texans wins in the regular season over the Chiefs and the Colts ran the ball like 40 times for 138 yards and then the Texans did the same thing and they said okay that's the blueprint no one has been able to duplicate it in 20 attempts since. They just don't. It's hard. Even the 49ers last year who had a lead, they tried to abandon that thing once they got into the fourth quarter. It just happens. You want to be able to put the game away, and that's when you get in trouble. Again, on paper, of course, Fournette, 35 carries for 165 and two touchdowns, and we win 28-21. to 21. I don't see it happening that way. FanDuel betting as of Thursday a.m. Are you getting excited for this game, though? I mean, I can't I am. FanDuel betting. Percent of bets on Kansas City, 67%. Really? Percent of money on Kansas City, 80%. I don't like this if I'm a Chiefs better. Money line bets, 47% on KC, 53% on Tampa. Um, and then over under... Pretty much all the money is on the over. It's like 73, 74%. Everybody likes the Chiefs. This line's going to go to three and a half, I think, by Sunday. I think they're holding off right now. You can get value. You can get Tampa on FanDuel at basically even odds. You don't even have to pay a VIG on it. Beware of the looked a little too good. The previous round team is one of our gambling manifesto rules. It is. The Chiefs look fucking awesome last round against that weird Buffalo team that uh, couldn't run the ball anymore and and was missing a couple key guys. Uh, the nobody believes in us factor. It's a little bit there with Tampa. Yeah. Nobody thought we could win four straight rounds. People thought Tom Brady was old. Everybody said this Mahomes is the next dynasty. Well, here's the dynasty right here. It's Tom fucking Brady. Yeah. Um, rule number six of the manifesto: Don't pick an underdog unless you genuinely believe it can win. I think the Bucks could win. Rule number 10, when in doubt, gravitate toward the pick that would screw off the most gamblers and experts. Seems like the Chiefs. And then rule number 16, take one last look at the quarterbacks, which we're mm. going to do right after this break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game. And they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right at first half of the first game. I don't know, West Coast time, that's usually about 
five o'clock, 5.30, perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. Tom Brady, mm. 43 years old, capable of playing really well in football games against good teams for stretches. We have not seen the all four quarters version of Tom Brady. Here, here's the case for him being good on Sunday. It's basically two games. You have the the le- the huge lead up, then the game starts. It's ugly. It's choppy. Everybody's got too much adrenaline, and then around midway through the second quarter, it starts to heat up, and then it stops, and we have a forty minute Super Bowl halftime, which Brady knows, and Brady has talked about this about. Yep. Part of the key of playing a Super Bowl is knowing like just how fucked up of a game it is and how you have to peak in the second half. I think you can make a case because it's two half games. That's actually good for Brady. He he it's not like I need to put together four quarters in a row. It's like first quarter is gonna be first half's gonna be weird. I just don't want to turn the ball over. We're gonna run the ball, be careful. I'm gonna take advantage of my tall receivers. Of I'm I'm not making a mistake. Second half, now it's like, now I got my adrenaline going. Now I just, I'm 90 minutes away from my seventh Super Bowl. <clears throat> I think he locks in. I think this is the best version of Brady in this game. I actually think it's going to be way different than that Green Bay game. Your thoughts on this prediction? I think you're right. I think Brady's awesome in this game. I also think as much as it was banged over our head over the last two weeks, not enough is being made of as we lead up to this thing, that it is a Buccaneers home game. Yes, sir. It is a Buccaneers home game, and I've spoken to sources on both sides of this thing. And when I tell you that it is the Chiefs fans travel and there's going to be red in there, and that's all great. There's 7,500 healthcare workers going to be in the building from the NFL, most of them from the Tampa area. Um, you have all of the Tampa local folks who have access to this that are going to go because the Super Bowl comes once every 10, 15 years to Tampa Bay. And you know, I, I, there was like a goof of a story, but I could tell you, and I mean this seriously, the Buccaneers wanted to be able to shoot those cannons, like the ones that they do at the games, and they made a big deal out of it. And the Chiefs, like highest up at the Chiefs, were like, that's bullshit. They're not allowed to do that. They didn't earn that. Like you guys get, so then for a week, there was tit for tat on whether they can blow the cannons or not. And it turns out the NFL sided with the Chiefs, but like, psychologically, you know, the Bucks are leaning into this saying they were worried about the cannons. Like, we might have something here. They're worried about our cannons. Forget what we can do. Like, look, the Chiefs are traveling Friday. I love, I love that piece of this. Yeah. No, they travel Friday. It's like, okay, boom, we're in the Super Bowl. You don't usually have a week to get your, your, your feel. You get to work out at the stadium one day. You get to know the whole hoopla. Now, you could say, look, it's just another business trip, just another game. Chiefs, that's what it is. They're used to this. But Brady is sleeping in his bed the night before the game. I'm sorry. You say what you want. When you get to sleep in your own home before a game and you get to just say, all right, I'm going to drive my own car to the stadium at 3 o'clock tomorrow and we're going to play in the Super Bowl, I think that is a giant advantage. And as much as we were like, oh, you know, we roll our eyes, first team ever to host a Super Bowl – I don't think anyone's talking about it right now. And it's huge. It's huge. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, heading out of of the last break into this one, talking about the quarterbacks. For Brady, he he knows. He's already the GOAT. That's fine. Winning the one without Belichick 
I would argue he has more incentive for this one than any game he's played in since that Seattle Super Bowl, where it was like the Pats hadn't won a Super Bowl in 11 years. Um, maybe it was a fluke. Maybe they were never that great all along and they win that one. It's like, and you see Brady jumping up and down after the Malcolm Butler thing. He's never going to care about a win from the last 12 years, more about winning that game. Right. But this one, all the different legacy shit that goes in. I've just been thinking like whatever that dude, I can't even imagine if, if somebody was like, Hey, we figured out the hemoglobin from four-year-old children in the Tampa Bay area might give you a little more adrenaline. Brady would be like, put it in a fucking milkshake. I'll drink you it. Do like, it. Let's go. He'll literally put anything in his body that would help him win this game. As long as it didn't get him uh, suspended. Um, the nobody believes in us slash we've never been here before. I want this more badly than I've wanted anything in my life. You go on down the line, right? Sue never won a Super Bowl. Yeah. Evans and Godwin. Gronk as a fuck you to Belichick because yeah. he clearly has issues with him. Fournette as a fuck you to the Jags. You go on down the line, they have 25 guys, all the guys in the secondary. Devin White, David, who's slogged away on all those shitty Nine teams. This is, this is the greatest Pro moment of their lives. This is like they're three hours away when they're... The Chiefs won last year. They already did this. There is no way this game means as much to the Bucks uh, to the Chiefs as the Bucks. It might mean ninety eight percent as much, but this is the single most important night of everybody's life on Tampa sideline, except for like two people: Todd Bowles, Arians, Arians, all the way through, and they're home. Like I, I, I feel like that it has to be mentioned as an advantage. The Brady effect can't be discussed enough on this team. So they're a shit team for the last decade. They never go to the playoffs. All that stuff. And I was getting texts from folks who work for the team around August being like, you should see Devin White at practice. He's unbelievable because Brady's talking shit to him and Brady's getting into like it's he's lifting all of them. So the story I got from this past weekend, I think Levante David retold it um, on a podcast he did with like Brian McFadden and Patrick Peterson. Someone sent me the clip because I was like, yeah, I was talking about it. After the NFC championship game, I believe it was Jadon Mickens who returns kicks for them was crying at his locker because he was overjoyed with the opportunity to go for a Super Bowl. And apparently Brady walks up to him and was like, what the fuck are you crying for? And he's like, uh, he's like, we have a Super Bowl to win, dude. Like this is, we don't cry over NFC championship game wins. So this is the demand and the standard that Brady has. And last year, I remember speaking with Brady, I did a sidelines game for NFL Network when they played the Bills. And I got to speak with Brady in one of those production meetings where, you know, all the announcers are like, we talked to Tom on Friday. Well, I talked to Tom on Friday and he was like, I don't have anything against Jacoby Myers. I have nothing against Nikhil Harry. You're asking a lot from rookie receivers to play at the standard that I demand. So when everyone sees me barking at them, it's not anger at them. It's that it's so frustrating for me because I know the standard and we're not reaching it and there's nothing I can do about it. He gets to this team. They're all so good, so hungry, and they're so loving. So like Arians is like, Brady, take a Veterans Day off if you want. That didn't fly up there. Arians told JPP, you don't have to practice at all this year. Like, just come when, like, I got you. Just be ready on Sundays. And then the, the other piece is Alex Guerrero's there every single day with a Buccaneers logo on his jacket, sitting there on the field at practice. Like, bring whoever you want. Whatever you need, Tom Brady, we're going to embrace it. We're going to make it easy on you and we are going to be grateful for your presence 
And I think he's trying to give that favor back. Like, I want to show you that you can win and have fun at the same time. Do you see the, there was a meme this week where they took a photo of him for like the CBS specialty shoot and he did the shrug shoulders, like having fun. Like Brady's shrugging and giggling before the Super Bowl. It's a whole different deal. And I think they all feed off it. Like they don't want to lose this for Tom Brady. They, they respect him so much that I think they want to win for him too. He's one of the greatest and one of the most special team sports athletes of all time. And also, more importantly, one of the most competitive. And him pulling this off, I think he gets it. Some guys, they can play their whole careers and they don't think about the big picture stuff. And even Brady's been on the record as, what's your favorite Super Bowl with the next one? This guy, and it really changed, I think, over the last 10 years. He's crafted his entire life to succeed at football. It's all he cares about. And I, I think the TB12 thing has kind of bled into that a little bit because he's so passionate about how his lifestyle choices have led to the extended success he's had as a great football player that he really believes in that stuff. Like it's not like it's a little Tom Cruise, but I think there it's authentic. Um, I think he gets this. He understands if I do this, this now I have to be mentioned with like Jordan and Ali there. There's this whole other level. There's this extra room in the nightclub is he not the greatest ever. Is, he, is he on the outside of that nightclub right now? What's I don't list? think, What's I don't think Ali? people, yeah, I don't think people think of him on the Jordan level yet. Jordan, Ali, Federer, like who else are we including in this list? Tiger? The, Tiger, Tiger was there and then they kind of kicked him out of the room and they moved yeah. him to the next room. Federer had, you know, he's the greatest tennis player ever on one hand, but on the other hand, like a lot of people went toe to toe with him and beat him. Beat him. Yeah. So he's probably on the list with Brady. Brady's, some people have looked him in the eye and they've beaten him. You know, I think the difference with Jordan, um, that nobody was able to beat him when it really mattered. So I think with this, like, it's all going to depend if they win and how he plays. I think they're tied together. If it's like a Peyton Manning kind of Super Bowl win where it's like, eh, he didn't do that much, but all these other good things happen. But I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think he has a lot of weapons. And I think this Chiefs defense isn't that good. And I think he's going to do a good job this weekend. So let's flip it on its head just for argument's sake, because that's what we're doing. Second half Brady from Packers game. Well, no, Mahomes is coming into this game. Yeah. And what if he beats Brady? Mahomes has his whole life ahead of him. Exactly. He's going to go down as like the best exactly. quarterback ever. Does this not? Does this not put a stake early in it the does. ground and say, "Okay, I've already beaten him, so they can't hold that against me"? Like, if you want to think real long term, say Mahomes is there for ten more years and he's got plans of winning all these Super Bowls, I beat Brady. Don't bring Brady's name up. It's as if Brady beat Montana straight up. Like, right? To me, this is. Mahomes at 25 saying, here's my second, and I've already, you know, beaten Brady at 25 in the third year of my career. I, it, or third year starting. In my well, career. that's why this is such an awesome game. It's amazing. All right. Well, I think I'm going to take the Bucks plus three. And really? here's why. You yeah. can go to sleep Saturday night knowing you're, you're this, you got this flawless record, million-dollar picks, the whole deal. Yep. And you're going to say, okay, I've watched Mahomes and Kelsey all these playoffs, and I'm going against them. Yes. Um, for two reasons specifically. One is that I think either team can win this game and I'm getting the three points and my goal is to cover the spread and I get Tampa plus three and I think this is going to be a close game that I think Tampa Bay is actually going to win. 
But if they don't win, I, I still think like it's going to be close. I don't see a scenario where the Chiefs, you know, blow them out or anything like that. I think Tampa has too much talent. Um, that's one piece. The other piece is all the stuff we talked about, the incentives, the fact that they're home, the fact that I think they're playing really well. And then I, I just think they, I think they match up really nicely with this Chiefs team. I think they're going to be able to run the ball on them. I think their tall receivers are going to be able to make plays. I think Brady will be meticulous about not making mistakes. He will feel less pressure than anybody in this situation who's ever been in this situation because he's this is a fucking tense Super Bowl. And I don't know. I keep going back to that Cleveland game. Even before the Mahomes injury, Cle Cleveland was kind of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Kansas City there. And they could move the ball and they could do things and they could get a little pressure. And I was pretty telling. I don't know how good this Chiefs team is. I guess they is were my down point. nineteen to three before Mahomes got hurt. They, like, but they they came back though. Remember with they, Henny. Well, but that was what was it at that point? Like nineteen eleven. Yeah. But the guy uh, fumbled it out of the end zone. I don't know. They had drives in that game. I know, and they didn't even go to Kareem Hunt in the beginning for some reason. They were like avoiding. Going they ran the ball. the ball. They were like almost six yards a carry with uh, with Chubb and Hunt. So here's what I, the Kansas City defense does though. Okay. You've got 32, Matthew, who's always there. And then they got this 38, Sneed, who makes a play every game. He's a rookie, fourth-round pick, Legereus Sneed. Like, he will make a play in the Super Bowl. And you're going to be like, who? He is good. No, that guy He's is awesome. Good. I'll give you that one. They're opportune. They can be run on, sure. And Bill Barnwell can do the analytics. And we can – I mean, it's all there. And the football outsiders guys can give you their ranks. When the Chiefs defense needs to make a stop or needs to make a play – they do it time and time again. And it's like bend, but don't break with them. And they don't give up the big play. They haven't since Spagnuolo got there. I'm going to go through some props. You're going bucks. I think I'm going bucks. You're so disappointed. We I'm disagreed not. on a I'm couple not. other of these. I'm not. I like it. We should disagree. The, all of these picks are based on my theory that the bucks are going to win this game. Okay. <laughs> Devin White, 50 to one for MVP and JPP, 80 to one. I wouldn't bet those. I just wanted to flag them. Could this be a, could this be one where everybody on Tampa's offense, it's kind of amorphous. There's no breakout guy and it actually goes to JPP because he had three sacks. Yeah. I would do the JPP over Devin White because I think he's going to get to the quarterback. I was thinking with the Devin White one. A pick he, six or something. Yeah. He shuts down Kelsey. He gets a pick six. He has a strip sack. Yeah. 50 to one so odds, good. not terrible. Two defensive players. Is, White? is he not like the most fun player to watch in football? But isn't that a good guy to throw on Travis Kelsey? Like somebody who actually athletically could hang with him and, and you know, dismantle him a little bit? Yeah, he could definitely run him down. And so could David. They're both two of the fastest linebackers in the sport. Playoff, playoff Lenny is 30 to one for MVP. Potentially. Props, six and a half punts. Seems high. High. Under. That's what I was thinking. All right, we're going to mark that down. Brady plus 296. Oh, I'm sorry. Brady's over under for uh, pass yards is 296 and a half. That seems really high to me. It does. It, especially if if my thesis is going to be the Bucks are going to win this game. They're going to win the game by they have nine drives. They control the clock. They have 37-minute time of possession. A little like they, So I don't see him throwing 300 in that. Fournette's over-under is 48-and-a-half. Tyreek is 94-and-a-half. Kelsey's 98. 
if you want to do Kelsey 110 plus, do a little alternate prop on FanDuel plus 142. I mean, every game it's 110. Every game, plus. unless he gets hurt, he's getting a getting. My, someone brought this up to me today from a, another team. A guy texted me like, you know what? Like because of their offensive line, don't be shocked if Kelsey's uses a blocker a lot. I'm like, no, fuck, no, they're no, they're not Kelsey. using. Yeah, he's he will not. They're doing not happening. Gronk is 31 and a half and Brait is 30 and a half. Yards? Yeah, for receiving yards. Kind of yeah. like the Brait one a little bit, just because it does feel like Brady likes Brait. He finds him in weird spots, but I, I like him more yards, for a though. touchdown prop. It seems like that's a lot. like that's like three catches. That's tough. How about JPP gets one sack plus 140? Oh, absolutely. I think JPP has a huge day. I think he might have two or three sacks. Okay. Um KC, total penalty yards, 39 and a half. That's two holding calls, a pass interference, an offsides, and a uh, legal man downfield. What were we talking about with Cousin Sal on Monday, though? Like, you don't want to bet. You don't, who wants to bet on penalty yards? Right? I'm just like, throwing it out there. We don't have to yeah. bet on any of these. That's actually an interesting point, though. Let me, let, let, if, if the strategy is to rush Mahomes, I think we'll know very early. The ref is Carl Cheffers, who's pretty, he throws flags. Like, if Mahomes takes an early hit from JPP, who's going to be on 11, or Devin White, who plays at this crazy speed, and they go a little hot, and it's, do they, is there a Jordan Rules deal where Brady or Mahomes are they're throwing flags and it's 15 yards here or there for late hits and unsportsmanlike? Well, I have, I have the bet for you. Roughing the passer, just one, plus 155. I like it. I, I was one of my favorite ones. I'm going like to, I'm going to mark that one down. Because you figure Brady and Mahomes, they're always going to err on the side of caution with both guys, right? Absolutely. Um, will there be a missed field goal in the game? Yes, plus 125. Yes. Feels like the Bucker thing is almost preordained. He hits, he'll hit it from 58. Right. Or so, like something weird will happen. Um, missed PAT, yes, is plus 230. Speaking of Bucker. A Butker missed PAT is yes, plus 470. <laughs> What's amazing is that for years, the Buccaneers had such kicking issues with Aguayo and all their guys, yeah. and Matt Gay, and now they're the team with the reliable kicker with Suckup. Um, there's some Fournette stuff that I'm intrigued by because it goes along with my theory that if the Bucks win or come close to winning, it partly would be because he played well. Is, 70... that not, is that not an incredible story, though? Like They ended up going 1-15, and they cut him because they are like, eh. We don't have room for you on the on the, on the roster. We it's really annoying. Like it's it happens in basketball sometimes, where like the buyout guy is all of a sudden playing crunch time. You're like, what the fuck? How'd they get yeah. this guy? Yeah, so just grab them off. Fournette seventy plus yards is plus two sixty five. Eighty plus yards plus three seventy. Ninety plus yards plus five fifty. One hundred plus yards plus seven fifty. How much do you think they're doing? I mean, that's your strategy. If you believe in it, go with a hundred. Seventy. 70 or 80. 70 seems right. realistic, right? Plus yeah. 265. I'm going to mark that one down. Uh, all right. FanDuel does same game parlays. I think they're very enjoyable. I'm going to read you a couple. <laughs> Let's do it. Scotty Miller scores and the Bucks win plus 729. The Scotty Miller followed by everybody in America making jokes about how Brady only throws the white guys. Mm -hmm. So you get that as part of the parlay too. Oh, of course. Mm -hmm. Scotty Miller, of course, of course he's going to throw to him. Uh, this one I like a little more. Tyler Johnson scores a touchdown. Bucks win plus 1329. Have you noticed Tyler Johnson's always lurking in big situations? Third for them? downs. He yeah. loves them on third. I'm going to mark that one down. 
just just where's the byron pringle prop bet i know he's having a game oh you like byron pringle i can find that for you he's doing Um, something brady scores a touchdown bucks win is plus seven 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 the only reason i mentioned that is because that seems like good luck seven 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 and it's his seventh ring and he's never scored a rushing td in the super bowl i could see the brady one yard rush over the top sure nine games zero rushing touchdowns in the super bowl so huh. that that would have to be. There's only one scenario. It's the, How it's about the Brady sneak. catching a pass? Is that one of them? No, I did not find that one. Gronk scores. Bucks win is five to one. I can see Gronk scoring. Fournette sixty plus yards. Bucks win plus three hundred three. If, if you're going by your strategy, that's absolutely that's a no brainer. Fournette ninety plus yards rushing. Bucks win plus eight forty six. Well, what do you like? What do you like more, sixty or ninety? What's more likely? I like the sixty. I could see him going like 17 for 68, something like that. Cause I do feel like they're going to use Ronald Jones a little yeah. bit. Fournette scores the first TD of the game. Bucks win is plus 16, 12. Tampa scores a defensive or special teams touchdown. Tampa wins. Those two things have to happen. Plus 11, 22. Pick six. Fumble I mean, return. It'd be monsters. Special oh. teams. Call out your guy. Who's going to do it for Tampa? Who's the guy? Is it White? De- Devin White jumping the Kelsey pass, reading it. See uh, it. The strip sack, the JPP strip sack picked up by Sue, rumbling Sue in. Just, Sue, the Vita just blocking. Yeah. Um, Secondary it, dude, or the the pass that's a little behind McCole Hardman and bounces up in the air and the safety takes it down the sideline. I kind of like that one. Carlton gonna, Davis pick six. All right, go for it. And here's my favorite prop. Um, this is a three-team same-game parlay. Brady under two ninety-six point five passing, Fournette over eighty yards rushing. Bucks win, plus nine ninety-eight, almost ten to one odds. It's a great bet. If 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 you're if the Bucks win, I feel strategy. like both of those other two things happen. Okay. Can you so, throw in? Can you throw in the defensive touchdown and make it a four-team parlay on that one? Oh yeah. Let's let's do that, and I'm gonna get you. Uh, I'm gonna get you the the Pringle odds. We're gonna take a break and come back, and we're gonna do the controversial million dollar picks for the Super Bowl. Hey, you can celebrate the 55th edition of the big game with exclusive 55 to one odds on FanDuel Sportsbook. If you've never tried FanDuel before, new users can bet on either team and get 55 to one odds when Tampa plays Kansas City. Five dollars win two seventy five if you pick the winner of the big game. On February 7th, we are going to be breaking this down. Not just the big game, but all the props as well off of FanDuel. Uh, coming up on Million Dollar Picks. FanDuel has a range of betting options. We're about to go through all of them. It's easy to place your bet faster in a game. If you see a trend you like, download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. Use promo code BS to get started. FanDuel Sportsbook promo, promo code BS. Must be 21 plus present in Colorado, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, West Virginia, or Virginia. New users only. Must wager on designated boost market. $10 deposit required. Max bonus $275. See full terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Schrager asked me to look up uh, Pringle scores a touchdown Chiefs win plus 577. It's a great dude, Pringle scoring a touchdown in the Super Bowl. It's the one sure thing. I love so, Pringle. <laughs> Make the Pringle case really quick. I love Pringle. He was the one who caught the coolest pass last year for Mahomes against the Colts. And then this year against the Bills made about three big plays. 
His, they love him there in Kansas City. I could see Andy concocting a way to get number 14, Byron Pringle, or 13, 13, Byron Pringle, a touchdown in this one. All right. It's time. And look, we don't always agree when the good <laughs> luck charm Peter Schrager's on million dollar picks, but that's part of the fun of this. We talk it out. So maybe it. we don't land in the same place, but I use him as my sounding board. He makes me think about things, maybe back off a couple of things, whatever. Uh, to recap, we are up 3.271 million for the playoffs. We are up 2.339 million for the season. Mm. Um, seven and zero in the playoffs with big playoff bets. Nine and three against the spread. We have picked all twelve winners of the actual games. First bet: seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars on Tampa Bay plus three even odds. Go for it, baby. Tampa, they win, they lose by three, I push. They lose by two or one, I win. Second one, we're going to bet 10K at 170 to one odds that the final score of the game will be Tampa Bay 30, Kansas City 23. I like it. That's the exact score. Tampa scores three touchdowns. They get three field goals. They punt twice. KC, they either two touchdowns, three field goals, or three touchdowns um, and a missed extra point in a field goal. Sure. Or 30 safety. to 23. There we go. Prop bets. We're going to bet 25K, six and a half punts under minus 110. We're going to bet 25K on a JPP sack plus 140. We're going to bet 25K that there will be a roughing the passer call. Yes, I see at it. plus 155. Sheffers has to keep him in line. We're going to bet 10K. Tyler Johnson scores, Bucks win, plus 133. We're going to bet another 15K. Ooh. Brady scores, Bucks win, plus 777. It's almost like I love it. I mean, it's it's in the stars. Has to be run. Or they throw they maybe they go Philly special to Brady. That's the one thing he has on his Bulls. resume. He hasn't done. Let's go. We're gonna do uh, f- do fifty k on four net, sixty plus rushing yards. Bucks win plus okay. three hundred three. We're gonna do. 10K on Tampa scores a defensive or special teams touchdown. Bucks win. That's plus 11. And we know the guy. We know it's Devin White. We know it. We know the guy. And then we're going to do 50K on this parlay at plus 998. Brady under 296.5 passing yards. Fournette 80 plus yards. Bucks win. Plus 998. If that hits, that's an extra 500K. It's great. And then just because it's the Super Bowl, we're going to bet on the under as well. Okay. We're going to put 50K on the under 55.5, which is minus 105. Okay. And that's all we have, except... What about my man Pringle? Are we getting Pringle in there? No, Pringle's your bet. I'm not doing any Chiefs bets. I don't want to root for one Chiefs thing. You ever been in Vegas and like your friend, like you're hot at the, at the roulette table and your friend's like, just put one on 16. You're like, no, uh, no, it's yeah. not. Yeah, it's my money. No. Okay. I thought I was, you're going to let me throw one in there. 
And then last one, just because you're pushing so hard for Pringle, we're going to put uh, 20K on Pringle plus 340 that he scores a touchdown in this game. You're a great friend. Thank you. And that's it. Those are the million-dollar picks for the Super Bowl. We'll see how we do. I guess we had one big bet, so we need Tampa plus three to win, and that will be we will go 8-0 in playoff big bets if that hits, plus all the other ones. We'll see how we do. I don't mind that we went against each other. I thought it was a healthy, it's a sign of a healthy marriage. It's great. There was some discourse back and forth. You made some points. I made some points. If only politics could be so like this. This was great. If only politics and real marriage could be like this. Trust me. Yes. 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 Peter Schrager, uh, enjoy Super Bowl weekend. Thanks for being on Million Dollar Picks as always. Thank you. This is a great ride. Good luck to your Tom Brady led Buccaneers. By the way, you know what Tom Brady's favorite Super Bowl is? The next one. Let's go, Tom Brady! One more time, you and me! Pats! Woohoo! Thanks, Peter Schrager. This episode is supported by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car, or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it, I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm, is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. All right, we're taping this on a Thursday. Super Bowl is a couple of days away. Casey Affleck is here. He has a new movie coming out, which we'll talk about in a second. But uh, most important question for anybody who grew up in New England and Massachusetts, are you rooting for Tom Brady? Hell yeah. Okay, good. Absolutely. Do you, do you have a history with Tom Brady? Um, I have a, yeah, I've got a long, long love affair with Tom Brady, but I, I don't think he knows about it. Just it's one-sided. <laughs> um, I mean, no one has didn't done more for, for New England sports. I'd say, I mean, some people have Larry and, you know, a few others, but Russell. Uh, yeah. He's in that. He's in the top four. Yeah. Probably. I mean, he saved the Patriots. You grew up in, you grew up in Massachusetts. The Patriots were the black sheep. Yep. I was very young. I mean, Tom's been playing since, you know, the early 70s. So it's, uh, <laughs> I was, uh, I mostly remember winning. Yeah. Um, we watched the Malcolm Butler Super Bowl in the same room at Kimmel's house. I brought Kornheiser there. Your brother was there with Matt Damon. The Patriots had hit a point where it seemed like those three Super Bowls that they had won were a mirage. And now we we're back to being the bad luck Patriots, Tyree catch, all these things. It's like, oh, we're just going to come close and get kicked in the nuts. And and then all of a sudden things flipped and it was complete chaos. And we won three more Super Bowls. So there you go. Yeah, there you go. And uh, that was, that was, those were good times, man. The Sox were winning. Patriots couldn't be beat. Wow. Great. Great. My kids, I had two kids born in 04 and 07. I mean, everything was just clicking. I had my my wife was pregnant during the 04 World Series. So we called my daughter the miracle fetus. And then my son, she was pregnant with him in the 07 World Series. So then I was thinking, like, hey, should I just keep having children? The Red Sox will keep winning the World Series. But then they won two more anyway. I stopped at two, but it just kind of 
kept going and going. You did, what was that SNL one you did? You did the Dunkin' Donuts, the fake yeah. Dunkin' Donuts one with the, I, I mean, it was like the perfect use because I always feel like you and your brother and Matt Damon, three of the best dialing it up Massachusetts accents ever. I was glad they took advantage of that in a sketch. That was really fun. I wasn't, I wasn't a uh, very good at SNL. Um, that was the first time I'd done it. And I just, I just, I haven't been in a ton of a lot of comedies either. I don't, they just sort of let me do it. Um, and I remember thinking like, I don't think I'm really killing it here, but then, uh, doing that skit, that was a pre-recorded one. And, um, I sort of felt like, Oh, I can do this. It was more like working on a movie or something, you know, you can right. do it 15 different ways and start over. And, uh, um, that was a lot of fun. You know, going backwards to when you were in Goodwill Hunting, because I remember I love that movie and I was watching the director's commentary and it I think your brother was one of the people on the commentary, but he was talking about how you're basically ad libbing all this shit during the movie. So that that's not that much different than SNL, right? <laughs> uh, well, you know, on SNL, man, you have to stick to the cue cards a little bit. Um, I mean, I a few times I would I would I would misspeak or say something different or whatever, but um, mostly you gotta kind of stay with the program. Um, but then when you do those pre-recorded things, those uh, you know little short films that they make, then you, you can kind of do whatever you want. Yeah, and that that was a lot, especially with that character. That was a lot like Goodwill. Um, I don't know why I ended up saying making up all my own lines in that movie. I think I mostly just felt like they had written all the they had written themselves all the good lines, and I was like, well. Fuck you, I'll just say what I want then. Yeah, there was one, I remember, I only saw this once, but I remember there was a scene with you in the baseball glove and Ben was explaining how they had no idea you were going to do that and they were trying not to not to make each other laugh in the scene. And, uh, and, and that scene was the one that they kept in the movie, I think, right? Yes. I was a long time ago. I can't really remember, but I think that was in the movie. And at a certain point, if you're hanging out with your friends and you're making a movie, if you're lucky enough to do that, you know, you've got 15 hour days. There's a lot of downtime. Pretty soon the things just evolve into trying to make each other laugh, just right. trying to entertain one another. Uh, and Gus Van Sant, the director, likes that kind of thing. So nobody was cracking the whip on us and saying, like, get back to the script, get to this or that. And so we spent a lot of time, you know, just kind of horsing around. Well, going backwards, I think you did this, whatever that, that what was it, the AFI thing that, that honor Matt Damon and you told a whole story. You told a whole thing about how him and Ben just used to torture you because you were literally the younger brother and you were just, you were just tortured by those guys for years and years and years. I don't remember telling that story, but I do remember thinking like that was in a, a show to give Matt a lifetime achievement award. And he was probably like 43 at the time or something. And I just thought, <laughs> I'm not taking this seriously. Uh, yeah. I think I had a few photographs put up and doctored behind me on the thing just to make him look bad. And uh, <laughs> I told some story. I just did any, said whatever I could to try to embarrass him. Um, I don't remember saying that they tortured me. They, you know, they were pretty good. Although the first time I ever met Matt was, um, tell this story, we took the same bus to school. I was uh, in second grade and I had a girlfriend named Kamala and her older sister was a girl named Kafi. And uh, she was in like seventh grade with Matt. I didn't know who Matt was. I was a much younger kid, uh, but we waited on the same corner and we got on the same bus. 
but because this girl who I really liked was sitting next, you know, she wanted to sit with her sister. So she went to, um, she would sit with her sister. So then I would go sit with her, which ordinarily someone at my age would not have been allowed in the back of the bus to sit, you know, with the older kids. Um, and at the time I was really into karate. Uh, yeah. And I was going to Fred Villari's school of defense. I was like a yellow belt or something, you know, I was eight, nine years old or something. And um, so I was wearing my gi to school, which I thought was pretty cool. And, um, and I <laughs> sat down there on this, on this uh, school bus um, in the back there. And, and Matt said, Oh, so you're a, you're a yellow belt, huh? And he said, I'm a black belt in street fighting. And um, Matt was not a black belt. Street Matt's never been in a street fight. <laughs> Matt's never been in a fight, as far as I know. But I so that's one of the one of my favorite stories about him. Um, and he's uh, I might have told that story at AFI, but I don't think that was as close as he ever got to torturing me. Uh, he's a he's a pretty gentle, sweet guy. It's crazy that you've known him for that long. Cause you make it, you make Goodwill Hunting, and obviously you grew up with Ben, and then you've known Matt since you were in second grade, and then somehow Cole Hauser gets pulled in as the fourth guy and just tries to fit it because he knew those guys went from Dazed and Confused or School Ties, one of those movies, yeah. and uh, and just kind of gets pulled in as the fourth honorary person, right? Yeah, and he was a little intimidated about doing a Boston accent, which isn't that hard to to learn, and he could have done it, but I think he just thought like everybody here is like really really is from Boston. And so he just, he had a bunch of lines in the movie, but he kept either giving them away or he would just say like, I think my character's drunk in this scene. Kind of must slur <laughs> his words or put his head down on the table. Right. And ended up not saying anything. It was effective. I was living in uh, Charlestown when you guys were making that movie. I When Damon was on the podcast, I told the story, but I'll tell it again. They had an improper Bostonian cover story about local kids making a movie and and I remember reading. It. I was like, "Oh, the guy from School Ties." And, oh, the O'Bannon from Dazed and Confused. Like, and it was like just like I hope that I hope that makes it. And then yeah. you know, a year later, a year and a half later, it became what it became. And you know, I I can't imagine you were expecting anything close to that. Where were you filming that mostly in Southie, right? Yeah, we filmed it mostly in, in Southie and. Um... Am I remember? Yeah, we did a little bit in Toronto. Believe they forced mm. they forced the production to shoot a little, some of the interiors in Toronto. I had done the first thing I ever did was called To Die For, which was yeah. how I, how we met Gus Van Sant. Um, that was also set in New England, and it was a true story about that teacher who had a relationship with her student and persuaded her student to kill her husband. Um, and um, I knew Gus from that, and we we stayed pretty good friends. We're still very good friends. And uh, so he called me up when I was, I'd gone back to school after I did that movie. And um, I was in school and he called and he said, Hey, I read this script. I haven't finished it yet, but I read it. It's by these two guys. Is Ben, is ben your brother? And I said, yeah, yeah, he's my brother. You should finish the script. It's really, you know, and uh, he liked it. And then um, he ended up doing it. So um I, it's, I knew that, you know, Gus was a great director. And I knew that he was just going to do a good job with it. So I didn't think like, and I had Robin Williams in it as well. Yeah. So there was some sense that it was going to be a good movie. Um, but yeah, I didn't think that it would be, I don't think anyone imagined it would be uh, so popular. To Die For was a, a weirdly crucial Nicole Kidman movie. Because it was really well received and it's a good movie. And I think it has some legs, but I think that was the movie... 
after that, she became like an A-plus list star. Before that, she was like a movie star who's married to Tom Cruise. But I don't, it seemed like her career was different after that. that and that was a yeah. really cool movie too. It was like black comedy, a little bit different. But now I think that's the kind of movie a lot of people have tried to rip off over the last 25 years. Yeah, it's true. Gus, Gus Van Sant's one of those directors where people steal him. Like he'll, he'll do these movies. They're sort of considered like, people like them a lot, but sometimes they're considered too arty or something. And then everyone steals it. And Nicole had done Dead Calm, which was a pretty cool Australian yeah. movie. Um, and she was fantastic. And it's true. She was sort of in Tom's shadow just because they were married, which wasn't really fair. Um, and she wanted that part very badly. Uh, I think someone, uh, Meg Ryan or someone was going to do it. And then um, and then Gus ended up casting Nicole Kidman. And she was fantastic. I mean, then she went on to be, you know, she had a long, great career. Yeah, that was... She's incredible. It's funny. They they showed an old SNL that she hosted because sometimes they'll show the old ones on at 10 o'clock at night and it'll pop up on the DVR. And it was one that she hosted in 93. Stone Temple Pilots was the musical <laughs> band. And her monologue, the whole monologue was about people in the audience asking where Tom Cruise was. <laughs> and it's just like, hey, that's great, but where's Tom Cruise? And so you think like, I think to die for after that, it it, it probably flipped. When when Ben and Matt were were uh, living in LA and writing Good Will, you must've gone to visit them a couple of times, right? What were you doing? You know, after high school, I was still 17 and me and a friend of mine drove out to LA because uh, yeah. we want, you know, wanted to be actors. I didn't know, we didn't know anything about LA. Didn't have an agent. Didn't, and uh, just kind of came out here. My brother was in school out here. I knew a couple other people living out here, and I spent the whole year auditioning. I didn't get anything. And then at the end of the year, I got that movie to die for. After yeah. that, I just thought, you know, that wasn't a lot of fun being in LA and auditioning. So let me, I'll just go back to college and you know go do other stuff. Um, and they moved, so uh, I was living in Massachusetts. Those, some of those guys, me and uh, some other friends, including those two, we all lived together in, in a city called Somerville in Massachusetts. And, oh, um, yeah. yeah. And that's when they were, they were working on it then. They were trying to get it made. Um, so, yeah, I, I was around. And, Wait, and, hold on. Uh, where, where in Somerville? I got to know. We lived in Davis Square. I, I, that would have been my guess. Like one of those big old school houses that were kind of semi broken down, but yeah. the plumbing still worked. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mostly it still works. <laughs> <laughs> mostly every two months the plumbing goes goes haywire. Yeah. So uh, when uh, when Ben when that whole thing took off and those guys became like massive massive celebrities and you're watching it from the side, did it make you want to be famous or did it not want you to not make at you all. not want to be famous? Not at all. Yeah, not I figured. I mean, it. You know. You can't complain. Those guys should never complain about, you know, anyone who's, who has that, you know, if you don't want that, you can quit. And pretty quickly, people forget about you. Yeah. Um, but uh, it isn't always uh, fun. Uh, and from, you know, being next to it, I could see, like, mm, I don't want this. I think they like it more. They, they wanted that more. We're less bothered by the kind of invasions of privacy. They didn't seem, they didn't mind that, you know, they didn't. Uh, so, but I, it didn't, you know, I, I was young enough to see sort of other people go through it early on uh, to see sort of like what was good about it, which was that it creates opportunities. You want to be an actor, you know, you get famous. Well, then you get to work with a lot of great people. Um, and there's also downsides too, you know, but 
for whatever reason, it, it wasn't something that I was craving. Yeah, because with your career, you'll if you even if you go and look at like your IMDb, you'll just disappear for like two years and then you'll come back and <laughs> and then all of a sudden there'll be the you know, like you look at all of a sudden you're in all the Ocean's Eleven movies. And then uh, and then in 07, you do the the uh assassination of Jesse James and Gone Baby Gone in the same year, and then you don't do anything for three more years after that. But <laughs> I think the 07 thing, uh it's it's funny that the Jesse James has really has legs. I think that's now considered one of the best movies of that decade by a lot of people. And I, I don't know if that was the case when it came out. I think it was respected. You, you know, you obviously did well, you got nominated for it, but I don't think that was the consensus coming out of 07. Like, Oh, that's going to be one of the decades movies. Now it seems like that's a consensus. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's, it's funny how that happens. I, I, that movie was kind of a bomb Warner brothers, you know, uh, they had really good people there running Warner Brothers at the time, and but they just couldn't fit that into what the studio was. It wasn't a part of like, it wasn't like other movies that they kind of market. And um, so it, it was a tough one and it didn't do well. And uh, but it, it has now since become and also it was a Western. So people, you know, some people like Westerns, some people really love them. A lot of people just aren't interested at all. So it was hard to market. And also... Brad Pitt dies, you know, two thirds of the way through or something like yeah. that. And so it was kind of like a lot of people that were going there to see a Brad Pitt movie and then I kill him. And they're like, are we still, why are we still watching this movie? You're like, it's in the fucking title. <laughs> What'd you think? He was going to live at the end? <laughs> um, it didn't do well. It has become uh, recognized. You know, Andrew Dominic, who'd made a movie called Chopper before that, he, he has a movie about Marilyn Monroe coming out. Hasn't, isn't out yet, but I've seen it and it's uh, unbelievable just great. So he's, he's an incredibly talented guy and he works on these movies. He doesn't just crank them out. He stays with it for two years, editing it and refining it. And I think they get to a point where they aren't just the kind of thing that, that pops immediately, but then people, uh, they learn over time that it's, they're great. It's an amazing movie. And it's, I, I'm st I still have cable and direct TV. I'm, I'm old. But, you know, so we, that's why we have a podcast called The Rewatchables, because a lot of times you're just flicking channels like, oh, this movie, oh, I'll jump in. Yeah. It, it didn't seem like that would be a rewatchable movie, but I feel like it is because it's so different. And there's also like a million fucking people in it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like, it's just like every actor like, oh, that guy. Whoa. Hey, whoa. And it just yeah. kind of keeps going and going. Yeah, when you, um, one, yeah. when, um, when you were working with your brother, were you, was that something you wanted to do? Were you nervous about it? You know, you your, know, your big brother's directing you. Like, what what were the what were the um, things that concerned you heading into that? Um, I wasn't too concerned. I mean, at the time, he hadn't then made anything, and so no one really thought that he was gonna, you know, make a good director. Because usually, for whatever reason, people tend to like doubt instead of believe out right out of the. Uh, well, people kind of so, written people kind of written him off too, because he'd had a couple bad movies, and they're like, ah, Affleck, he's out. Yeah, it's true. Um, and I think that's why he wanted to direct is because he was having a harder time. Maybe, uh, you know, people have all kind of ups and downs in their career. And he was he was not having a good sort of run as an actor. Um, but I knew that he was like a really smart guy and had good taste. And uh, so I had already done Jesse James. Uh, in fact, I was shooting it in Canada and he came up to the set to visit. Uh, and he said, hey, do you want to do this movie? Um, and I think that, you know, he probably... 
had I not had just gotten the lead in like a Warner Brothers movie, he wouldn't have been able to get it made with me. So right. he, I think he kind of thought like, oh, shoot, maybe Casey can get my movie made. And so then he put me in it. And I, I wasn't concerned, but we did. We did fight a lot, um, but just in the way that brothers do, you know, uh, sometimes you work with a director, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty charged relationship and you can fight a lot and you end, I usually end up like, you know, really having a good, close, strong bond with the director. Um, but, but in the, but in the middle there, while it's happening, it can be, it can be difficult, but you just met the person a few months ago. So you're not really going to just like start yelling at each other. You know, you want, you're still trying to get along. Whereas then, you know, we'd known each other forever. We were very comfortable fighting. So, so we were just sort of, as soon as we started disagreeing about the smallest things, they just turned into a big fight. And I, (laughs) looking, looking back, you know, I think people thought like, these guys really aren't getting along here, but um, that's just how we relate. You know, I guess. I knew him a little bit back then when he was making that. And one of the things he told me that made me think the movie was going to work was he was fanatical about using real Boston people as like the extras and the little side pieces and stuff like that. He he had the same thing that always drove me crazy about Boston movies where they sometimes didn't seem authentic enough. There were, especially if you, I think certain cities are like this. I think Philly's like this. There's There's maybe Chicago's like this a little bit if you're going to set the movie in there and really root it with the real people, the people who are going to like live and die there and have the kids that then grow up there and they live and die there and then they have kids. I have to feel like those are the real people. And I I think one of the smartest things he did with that in the town was to um, cast real people that seemed like they were from Boston because they were, you know, and that's one of the reasons I really like that movie. I I don't know why people who make movies in, in Boston, um, more than in other places, they really like to do that. I guess that they feel like there's a there's a strong sort of like a sense of place there still. And where in other places they've been more homogenized by whatever culture, whatever yeah. it is. And um, but in Boston, there's still a sense of like, oh, this is in Boston. These people have still have accents, and they still there's a sense of like what it means to be someone who lives there. That is changing. But it's uh, just as like the city has been gentrified or so much over the past 20 years. But um, all other movies, you know, when I did when we did Manchester by the Sea, they Kenny did the same thing. He cast a, he cast a lot of people there. He also mixed in a lot of like theater actors and stuff because he comes out of that world and they blended in perfectly. You know, right. there are people I'm like, wow, Kenny, where'd you find this person? He's like, oh, she was on Broadway last year. I'm like, she's amazing. <laughs> she seems like she's been living in Lynn for 35 years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, I've thought a lot about why so many movies are in Boston. I think it's a couple of things. I think it's the accent. Um, the fact that the downtown it's, you have these identifiable pieces. I think for the viewer who's not even there, they, there's just things they know, like they get water. Oh, there's water around the city. They know, Oh, there's Fenway park and the sicko sign. Oh, there's like the big park. Like it's kind of condensed in the right way for a movie. And then you got the little side pocket towns. Whereas like, if you set a movie in Philly, I think it would be probably, I like, I don't have in my head what Philly is, you know? So I wonder if that's a piece of it, but I also think like just a lot of people who came to Hollywood or, or have some sort of weird Boston tie, which I don't, I don't really there's, understand the there's math. There's a lot of that. people from, I know, no, it's a, yeah. Cause it's, you know, far. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, how did they get here? It's uh, there are a lot of people from Massachusetts. 
uh, working, Mindy Kaling, John yeah. Krasinski. I mean, the list, Errol Morris. I don't know. For some reason, it just goes on and on and on and has for a while. But more recently, it might be because there's been a big tax incentive. They want movies and TV to shoot Massachusetts, so they yeah. give them a big break on the taxes. So that means that there's tons of productions go there. They end up hiring local. Those people get a few breaks. And then they're like, hey, I'll go give it a shot in Hollywood. you know? And they go out. So then there's a lot of people out here. Uh, or we're just like super, super talented. I don't know. Right. <laughs> One or the other. Or or maybe the cold weather and the and the uh the all the tough sports losses maybe push people toward being more creative as some sort what, of what tough outlet. <laughs> well, what? I'm talking way back. Now, oh, yeah, now maybe back. the next generation is so much happier with sports. Maybe that's maybe it's gonna die away. <laughs> people will be less creative. Well, you know, one thing is man, I when I go home, um, I find that a lot of those people just they're people that mostly it's people who have just moved there. You know, that like Cambridge where I'm from just didn't used to be all young urban professionals. It was yeah. people who had li- have been there for many generations. And just in my lifetime, that's changed completely. That's a bit of a bummer. I know that life has changed, but it is still, I wish that when I was there playing at the park with my kids and stuff, I was seeing like the kids, people who I knew and grew up there with, um, just not that way anymore. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, well, in Char- I lived in Charlestown for like 10 years and the grocery store downtown was Johnny's Food Master. He was grim. <laughs> I, I went back there like a year ago and it was now Whole Foods. And I was like, oh, Oof. there you go. He's so long, so long, Johnny. <laughs> Not nothing against Whole Foods. I just thought it was kind of telling that uh, you hate we, Whole Foods. Well, you hate from it. You John, hate it. John, Johnny's Foodmaster, you're holding up the seventy five percent ground beef. Like, kind of seeing if it talks back to you. Uh, you mentioned Manchester by the Sea, which you won an Oscar for, which I think most people know. Um, that movie's incredible. It's also grueling in a way that um, I would say only a handful of movies I've seen in my life. Like that scene with you on the hill with Michelle Williams, I, it's one of the toughest four minutes I think I've ever spent in a movie theater, you know, and, and somehow, and we'll get to the movie you have coming out now, which also has some really tough moments, but like what, after you finish filming a movie like that, what happens to you like mentally and physically? Cause I, I got to imagine doing the same takes over and over again with something that that serious and profound and whatever, like that's just got to take something out of you. The whole movie took something out of me for sure. It, that, it was, uh, you know, sometimes um, you go and you do a movie and you just, um, you know, you give it your best shot. Um, but it, it, it's, it's just not that taxing. And whenever I've talked about sort of movies being hard, I just hate, I hate that. I hate the way I sound. I just, it, it's something about it just sounds like I've worked too many other jobs yeah. sit here and say that acting is a hard job. You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. they've been, I've been done a lot of stuff that is actually hard. Um, but that was hard. And, you know, it's just something that shouldn't be talked about because it just sounds so lame. But um, it, it was a, it, the, the thing about that scene on the hill with Michelle Williams is so good and, and all the other scenes in there, you know, like, I don't know, every scene in that movie was that Kenny Lonergan wrote such a good script it just did it did a lot of the work for us and um he's also such a a, just a like bizarrely brilliant guy about how people's behavior and about storytelling and that uh he's just a master at it and so those those the movies that he he writes and directs they just work really well he really touches really moves people um 
I just don't want to take any credit for it. It's just not, it, it was just something that uh, when I read the script, I, I cried and uh, so did everybody else. And the same thing happened when you saw the movie. And um, there were a lot of really good actors in it, Lucas and Kyle Chandler and um, Michelle Williams, all these people. And they're all great, but I, uh, you know, all the credit has to be to, to Kenny, who, who's just a genius. And, you know, I was listening to Will Ferrell was on your show. I can't remember when it was, but I listened to him. And he was talking about how um, he was thinking in the future, people will watch, you know, he wondered whether or not people would watch movies or they would just watch their favorite scenes like on YouTube or something, you know, like people will just go in and sort of watch, like they'll return to, you know, they've seen the movie once and they'll just like look up their favorite scene on YouTube and watch that again and enjoy it. And they won't, they won't sit and rewatch movies over and over. And I was thinking how I don't have any scenes like that in my whole career. Like I've been, when I go to do, like sometimes you go to a talk show and they want to show one clip of a movie you've done. I've never been in that position and had the clip be any good. And I always wondered like, why does my, anytime I'm in a movie or something, the, the, you can't find one scene on its own that's very good. Some of those movies have been really good, you know, but Will Ferrell, every single one of his scenes is great. Like if he's in a scene, it's great. It's going to be funny. You can show it and watch it for two minutes and you'll laugh, you know. I just don't have any of those. Um, whether it's Well, you have, man, you have dramatic versions of those. You don't have like the hilarious versions of those. I, I definitely don't have the hilarious versions of those. And I'm not sure that the draw, every, if sometimes I watch a few scenes sort of out of context in movies, I just think like, well, that's not that interesting. It's just never that impressive, except the one time in my whole career was the one scene I did with Will Ferrell, which is like, I, you can watch that scene out of context and it works. So I, I you know, I think um, that like movies like Manchester and scenes like that scene with Michelle, even those there's, and the way that Kenny tells stories, it's hard to lift one thing out. There's something else going on that he's doing that is sort of carrying the audience with him and, and, and that's why that movie ends up being so devastating is because it's uh, it, it sort of moves you in a way that's totally unexpected. And it's it's done like magic by, by Lonergan. Well, and then you also have Damon's the guy who wants to make it and he can't make it get, and gives you this part and produces it instead. This guy you've known since you were in the second grade. And what was I remember taught when he came on and we talked about it. There was no like fuck. I'm I'm that should have been me or any of that stuff. He was like literally so happy that the movie worked out and that you were great in it. And he's had his own like incredible success. And it really did seem genuine, you know. Where I wonder like some people like deep down like fuck that part was awesome. I wish I wish that had been me. But I didn't feel like he was like that at all. Like I felt like he was genuinely happy for you. Yeah, I think he probably was. He's had a lot of success. I don't think he's yeah. He's doing fine, Matt Damon. He's he's all right. That guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do you think that director's a genius? I've asked this question a couple of times on podcast to actors because he strikes me as a particular there's he's a one of one. He's like a unicorn. I don't feel like there's anybody else like him. There, There's some statistic about peep directors. Ninety eight percent of directors or 90 percent or something. I don't know what it is. Make one movie. Uh, and then there's like, uh, you know, the rest make or make more than that and it's because most people they go and make a movie then they uh it's no good you know it just turns like it's easy to you know the the skills that it takes to get a job as a director are sitting in a room and sort of getting people excited persuading them that what you're going to do is good that's a whole different skill set than actually being good as a director you know and he is someone who 
um, has that second skill set. He, he really, you know, in a way that other people don't. He hasn't made anything bad. Uh, talking about Kenny Lonergan, he has he's made three movies and they're all amazing. Um, so people should just throw money at him. You know, if the the industry was if got together and thought like, how do we want to save the movie industry? Let's just give all the resources to the people that make the best stuff that really reaches people. He'd be at the top of the list. You know, he's. Uh, he's batting a thousand. Uh, so yeah, I think he's a genius. It's because I remember the the Ruffalo Laura Linney movie, which I think is one of the best movies of that decade. I, I know I've now said this twice about two different movies, but I love that movie. <laughs> I really do. I I think that's that movie just shouldn't have been as good as it was for how kind of simple it was, but it's not simple, which is why it's such a cool movie. So I was always following him after that, and then he made that Anna Paquin movie that they argued about the length. And yeah. I don't think they even really settled it. And you can buy the one director's cut on Amazon versus the one that shows on cable. But that movie is that movie will reappear every once in a while. And that movie is also really fascinating. And that was like what five years before Manchester. So I'm glad. My point is, I'm glad. I'm glad it worked out in a big way for him because you could see the talent. I wonder though. I would love to see what his version of like an eight episode TV series is because a lot of his stuff is long anyway, with a lot of different characters. Yeah. That's what, that's what I would love to see somebody throw money at him with, you know, that would be great. That would like just, be amazing. Here's some money, make give us eight, like almost like with David E. Kelly, when he does uh, the big little lies type things, it's like seven episodes, get it here. Here's yeah. some money, get some actors go. Um, that would be neat. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash in every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card member. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Peloton. Spring, the best time of the year to dial your fitness routine up a notch. You know it's going to happen. It's going to get warm. You're going to start wearing shorts. You're going to start wearing bathing suits. You're just You're not going to be able to cover up behind those big coats anymore. Also, it's nice outside. Get outside. Do stuff. Or if you don't have time to get outside, I got Peloton for you. Whether you have five or 60 minutes, Peloton's workouts were made to challenge you. Classes like boot camps, full body strength, boxing, marathon training are created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in and you won't feel bad about not being outside. Peloton's expert coaches, challenging classes, and nonstop vibes will keep you coming back for more. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. The movie you made, uh, which, which is coming out now, even though you made it like two years ago, uh, our friend, it was initially my friend, now it's our friend, like you probably filmed that one, 2018, 2019, 2019. Was, yeah. So it's, you did it two years ago and now it's finally out. And it's in this weird pandemic world where it's released on demand. There's no theater. It got held. It was supposed to come out a year ago. Um, we did, like I, you've never had an experience like this. Like what, when you think about this movie, what do you remember about it now? It's been two years. Um, Every movie, you know, when it's over and then you have to talk about it a little bit later when it's coming out, it's hard for me to kind of 
you're in such a different place. Like you go, it was making movies like summer camp, you know, it's such a like contained little experience. So you go yeah. you show up, you make it, and then you leave wherever you're shooting and go back to your real life and you kind of leave it all behind. Um, so it's hard, but yeah, after a couple of years, it's even harder to, to remember. I think that, you know, I had a great time with Jason Siegel to go to Johnson, uh, is great in the movie. It's a true story. Um, it, and, uh, it's, it's a nice message, you know, this, uh, which I like. It's not really why I like pick movies, but it is what I like about that about this movie. I sort of just thought like this is something that whether it turns out and it's good or it's not, it doesn't matter. In the end, it's going to be something that I feel like I agree with that. Like the spirit of the movie is just is just right. Um, and I've done a lot of movies where I thought that they were great characters, but it was like an, a lunatic or a serial killer or an assassin or someone, and I go like you know, I was younger and I just wanted to play that part or I liked that it was dark material or whatever. And, um, I don't know, these days I've been thinking, uh, you know, trying to find things more where I'm, I kind of like the spirit of the movie. And, and, and our friend is one of those, one of those, um, because it's about a guy who, um, has got nothing. His life feels totally empty. Um, he feels sort of aimless and depressed and, uh, he, drops everything uh to go live with this these friends uh, uh his friends who whose lives are in crisis because um the the wife is dying of cancer and so he sort of puts everything from his own life aside and he goes to take care of these other people and by doing so he kind of rediscovers things that he likes about himself um and you know it sounds kind of hokey but the, like I just I just love that that sort of message about you know being of service to other people and how how it sort of is good for everyone. And it's a real life story. And you you don't play the friend, you play the husband. So for people listening who haven't seen it, Jason Siegel's the friend. Yeah. Who I think's had a really interesting career. He we, I did a podcast with him last year and I really enjoyed it. Like I really love talking to him. Back back when we could do podcasts where the two people were in the same room. Now mm -hmm. everything's on Zoom. But I thought he was excellent in this movie. I, I thought the the three leads were all really, really good, but he kind of, if if he doesn't do as well as he did in that part, I think the movie falls apart. You know how every movie has like that one, there's the one performance that if, it's almost like in sports, you know, like the Bucks this weekend, like if Fournette sucks, I don't think they can win. <laughs> um in, in your movie, if, like, if Jason Siegel's like a C plus, the whole movie falls apart because you have to buy that this guy, his life's in crisis yeah, and yeah. he's going to give up all this stuff. But I'm also kind of worried about him. I just yeah. thought he navigated it really well. And and uh, and by the end of it, you, you just bought all the relationships. He's a really good actor. I think yeah. you know, pe people just think of you as the stuff that you've done. So he's done a bunch of comedies. He did a bunch of like... Judd Apatow movies, and he did a bunch of, which are also great, and he did a bunch of, like, TV stuff, and so they don't think of him as fitting in in a, in a like, more of a dramatic role. He's great, and there's no reason yeah. he shouldn't, and I he'll do more of that, and uh, he's a lovely, lovely guy. Sports movies, like, no one will let me do a sports movie or a comedy, because they just think I'm the guy who does the Manchester by the Sea or Jesse James or whatever. That's and, your uh, fault, though. I feel like you could get this stuff done. I can't. I've tried. I tried to do a movie. I wanted to make a movie about those two Yankees in the 70s who traded. traded I remember families. that. Fritz Peterson and Mike, Mike Kekic? Kekic, yeah. Kekic, yeah. Oh, such a great story. Wait, I mean, you bought, you bought the story. you bought the rights to it, though. I, I, wrote, I wrote the script for Warner Brothers, um, 
but the but MLB is notoriously difficult giving their permission to use the names, team logos, all that kind of stuff. So there came a point. It was a pretty sordid tale. Um, I think it was an interesting story because it's really about the salaciousness aside of two players trading wives, families, dogs, houses, everything. Uh, that stuff, you know, notwithstanding. By the way, is, for people listening, he's not kidding. That's literally what happens. They they traded their lives for each other, these two pitchers on the Yankees. Yeah. Everything, fell, wives, kids, houses, the whole thing. Yeah, it escalated. They fell, they, they did it like they were swingers one night. They sort of like spent a night with each other's wives. Then they kind of fell in love. They tried to make it stick. They tried to keep it a secret. And the story ended up, um, breaking in a really interesting way because at the time women were not allowed to cover they weren't allowed in the locker room female journalists to cover these to, to cover the team uh, but the Yankees were kind of they were in the basement and the Mets were very uh, were having a good season and some of the better journalists wanted to go cover the Mets and one of them who had been traveling with the Yankees for a long time bailed to spend the season with the Mets and there was a uh, a woman who was um, tried to cover this, the Yankees and she wasn't allowed into the locker room. She was kind of like barred. And yeah. so when when this story came out, um, people heard about it, but it was not covered because at the time, journalists, it was it was kind of gauche. It was you weren't supposed to talk about players' private lives. Right. And um, not the way it is now. So things were really different. And that was just considered like kind of gross. But um this woman, had, it was treated so terribly by being, she wasn't allowed to cover the team. So she thought like, okay, well, I'll write about this. And in Ladies Home Journal, she wrote a story about these two this, these two players uh, trading families. And then the story broke and then it became national news. And Johnny Carson was making fun of him every night on TV. And it was really the first time that that happened. And in and, and part, it was because none of the other journalists wanted to be scooped. And it was in part because Watergate had happened <clears throat> and Woodward and Bernstein were heroes, national heroes. And a lot of the sports journalists wanted to feel like they could be heroes too, that they could write about, they could be investigative journalists, not just cover the games. Um, and these guys were traveling with the team out of an era of like Mickey Mantle, those yeah. Yankees, they, and they would seen all kind of stuff. And in the that was 70s, the cover it up era. It was the cover it up era. They were all doing drugs. They were doing drugs during the games. They were doing drugs at night. They were all fooling around and having affairs, and none of it was written about. And so suddenly the journalists thought, hey, we can write about this. It's big news. We get our names in print. And then uh, they did. And so it, it sort of got blown open, and the Yankees were embarrassed. Uh, they canceled family day that year for one thing. And, <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and these guys, uh, these, they, one of the couples tried to make it stick. They, uh, Fritz Peterson, um, and Suzanne, uh, tried to, they stayed together forever for the rest of the, they, they're still together. And the other, uh, couple broke up pretty quickly. They broke up right away. just didn't work. Um, so it was a really fascinating story. I thought it said a lot about the times. It said a lot about like the social landscape. It was also right when uh, the Yankees had been bought. Steinbrenner wasn't even allowed to go to the stadium, but like everything in sports was changing. The reserve clause was going to be overturned so that these guys could negotiate uh, collectively. At the time, players were like in the off season, they're selling cars, used cars, you know, because they weren't making any money and the owners didn't want to pay them. Steinbrenner was brilliant because he came in and said, um, pay them make them make them stars 
You know yeah. what I mean? Give them a fortune, make them stars. We'll make them wear suits. We'll make them shave their faces. We're going to turn them into these uh, household names and they are going to sell jerseys. They're going to get people in this. They're going to be, we're going to televise it. He sort of saw the future of it all. Uh, it led to Reggie Jackson. Yeah. So, so it sounds like, it sounds like baseball swinger ice storm. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of sleazy side of it, but there's a lot of art to it. Uh, it was also the birth of the modern family. It was like divorce. Divorced families can work. They can fully, yeah. they can break and come back together. And at the time, it was such a taboo. Everyone was humiliated that they were in this like broken family. Truth was, they had you know at least Fritz and his and his wife had a really happy uh, family. So I love that story. I've tried to make a couple others. I got one about the chaplain of the 49ers and uh, the Golden State Warriors right now, which we're we are writing. Oh, so you're first. you're really trying to do you you want a sports movie? You want this on your resume? Yeah, that, I mean I love sports. I grew up well, I grew up being wishing I was a professional athlete and having no shot in hell. Uh, so here I am, just trying to like you know to make a sports movie. I got to say, I thought I loved your brother's basketball movie. I thought it was really good. And it's been on cable. And uh, first of all, they nailed the basketball scenes. Because I like, I judge movie first, but then also you have to get the sports scenes right or I really get upset. And I thought all the basketball scenes in that movie were really authentic. Usually when they make basketball movies, they always fuck those up or there's what's the one your, guy in there. What's your favorite? What's your favorite sports movie? So... It used to be Hoosiers in the natural for a long time, right? Yes. And now I've seen all these movies so many times that now it, now it's just weird for me. Like probably Rocky three is probably my favorite sport. Just in terms of like, if all of them were on at the same time, what would I gravitate to? It might be Rocky three. What about you? I think Hoosiers and the Naturals are, are, I would have said that. So those are, those are gotta be the best. And I don't get sick of them. Also, I think Moneyball is on, is like rarely totally talked agree. about, but it's fantastic. Yeah. Totally uh, agree. Yeah. That's, I think Moneyball has been the best one of the last 10 years. Warriors kind of growing on me. I think that was really good. Um, it's, it's an MMA movie. I'm, I'm counting it. Um, but then going back, it's funny. Longest Yard came out 46, 47 years ago at this point with Burt Reynolds. I still think that movie's good. That's about as far back as I'd go. But um, I was watching Rollerball with James Caan probably, I don't know, two, three months ago. That Those 70s sports movies are really fun to rewatch, like North Dallas 40, Bad mm -hmm. News Bears I watched with uh, oh, my yeah. son. It's so politically incorrect. People would have like a fucking stroke if it happened now. Um, I think the the... Probably my favorite inappropriate one is Fast Break with Gabe Kaplan, which I don't even think don't they're remember. allowed to show on cable. Yeah, he basically, he goes to Vegas. He brings this kind of ragtag group of people who don't belong in college and tries to turn this basketball program around. Hmm. So what? It, so you have how many sports movie possibilities here? Three? I've got this one about Earl Smith, who is the chaplain of the... Um, uh, he wrote a book called Death Row Chaplain, and it's about his time on um, uh, working in San Quentin. I played baseball in San Quentin a little bit. I played in a baseball team, and uh, we would go up and play the prisoners in San Quentin. This guy started that program, uh, and he was, in the 80s, he went and got a he was shot six times in his face and neck when he was a young Jesus. man. And uh, he was in a coma. When he came out of the coma, he decided to sort of get his, go straight, stop dealing drugs and stop gangbanging and stuff and go become 
for seminary to become a um, the chaplain. And he and he went to San Quentin at a time when that prison was in terrible, terrible shape. Uh, and he showed up there, and he and he was hoping that he was going to save some people. Um, and he was frustrated. No one was really. He couldn't get traction with any of the guys there. He felt very. He felt like he was not helping anyone. And then he decided to start a baseball team inside the prison as a way of bringing people from different gangs together. It worked, and it's lasted until now. They still have the team there, the organization. Um, it was interracial. It was. Uh, mm. It was everything that people said it wouldn't. It couldn't possibly be. Um, and. He then left San Quentin and he went on to, you know, work for 49ers and, and uh, Warriors. And um, that sounds promising. It's great. And um, so that's in the works. And, um, um, you know, best prison sports movie ever. Tell me. Jericho. R- Mile. Richard Pryor. Jericho. Mile. Michael Mann's first movie. Guy. Guy. Peter Strauss is a guy, I think it's on Amazon, and I promise anyone listening, you will not regret renting the Jericho Mile. Peter Strauss is in prison, and he runs around the track every day, and somebody kind of sees him as like, wait a second, that guy's going pretty fast. This coach, bring him in. They're like, you could probably actually qualify for the Olympics here, but you got to do it on a professional track. But he's not allowed to leave because he murdered somebody. The inmates come together. They build him a track. So he can try to qualify. I won't spoil the ending, but I it's fucking it. great. Michael Mann's first movie led to Thief, led to everything else after that. That was it. It was a TV movie. So wow, Brian Dennehy's in it. it. Brian Dennehy, all these different people. What what leading actor or sports movie performance are you the most jealous of and wish you had been cast in instead? Moneyball? Moneyball's a good part. Yeah, Moneyball's a great part. Moneyball's, I mean, um, Redford was like, you know, in his forties, playing a kid who's like sixteen, or something. right? That's the natural. That was they used some good shadows in that in the Glenn, <laughs> the early Glenn Close scenes. It's like darker, yeah. So I maybe could be cast as that. I don't think that would that would go over these days anymore. But um, he pulls it off. He's he's the legend, the, the greatest. Um, what else? I wrote I wrote a review of when I was writing for ESPN.com when Damon did that rugby movie, Invictus, and the guy that he played was like this mountain of a guy. He was like six foot five. And I was like, Damon's like five, nine. He's playing this huge guy. And Damon emailed me. He's like, I'm five foot 11 motherfucker. Like half joking, but half serious. Uh, I'll tell you right now, he's joking by about three and a half inches. That's how much he's he's joking. Um, But it's true, man. It's hard to find actors, all these athletes and these, you come across these great sports stories and the guy's huge. And actors are all 5'3". And I don't know why. So it, I wanted to do the Josh Hamilton story. I wrote a script yeah. for that. Great story. The kid, he was like junior in high school and he was 6'5", you know, 210 pounds. He was just like, um, just a uh, bizarrely like big uh, athletic dude at a very uh, early age. So hard to cast that one. Um, that's a, I love that story. It just kind of went south. The movie ends when he gets back into baseball. Um, he, you know, he wins the home run derby. He's he the the. This is a guy who had been thrown out of Major League Baseball for three strikes rule. Right. You know, he violated the substance abuse rules. They they threw him out for good, and then they let him back in. Um, beautiful story um, about his redemption, but then sort of 
his life then sort of fell apart a little bit after that. Uh, so it's he almost to, had to make it right when he was redeemed. Yeah. And then, yeah. You know, we, here's what we don't need anymore of boxing movies. I think we're good for like about eight more years. Yeah. It's, it's, and it seems like every great actor, they feel like they have to do one. It's like, you got to put that notch on your belt that you got in amazing shape. And yeah, I'm in the best shape of my life. I trained with this guy for three months and I did it. And I played yeah. like Rocky Marciano or something. I, I'm whole, good with those. The whole those. time they're just thinking about the poster, you know? Totally. Like, I'm and how be. ripped they're going to be. Yeah. <laughs> We're good. And meanwhile, on the, on the flip side, like there's been like barely any hockey movies, which I don't understand. Like Slapshot came out in 1977 and it's still The Godfather. And it's like no, nobody's even made a run at Slapshot since. There's been a lot of basketball movies, but they're almost always like the coach trying to save the the kind of ragtag group of whatever. At least Ben's movie flipped it where the guy had his own problems. Um, football's been a mess, but, you know, there's a sweet spot. I'm going to say like that 91 and 93, like a movie like Rudy, which I think was 93, which I think Rudy's really good. I think Rudy's held up, even though the real Rudy is super annoying. Um I wish they just made more of those. Maybe now we're in the streaming era. Maybe Netflix, Amazon, those places. It's like 20 million. You get a sports movie and everyone's going to see it. Well, you know, soccer. I mean, so now people worry so much about selling their their movies overseas. And they say, ah, no one cares about baseball overseas. No one cares about American football overseas. You know, uh, but, but soccer, you know, uh, there was a story I really loved. I wanted to make about a kid who was a refugee and, and, um, in Africa, and he played. He was in, living in his refugee camp, and um, all he was—they realized he was great at soccer very quickly. Mm. And the, um, they kept sort of like put, you know, bumping him up to uh, traveling him around and playing in other camps. And the whole time, he was just looking for his parents because he was an orphan. He ended up being uh, finally the playing in some like UN game, and then the Galaxy spotted him, and they brought him to the United States. And he still could hadn't found his family. Uh, and then he put himself through school in the U.S. And then he went back to Africa and he found his mom. Really beautiful story. That's one you might be able to tell now. But you're right, people. There's also a kind of irreverence in a lot of sports movies that, like, right now doesn't doesn't fly. Call it political incorrectness or irreverence. Right. There's a certain you know thing that um, uh, it's, it gets tricky. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't know hockey. That's why I watch a lot of the 70s, 80s ones with my son, who's now 13. Like his one of his favorites and one of mine, too, is Bad News Bears of Breaking Training, the second one, when they steal the van and drive to the Astrodome. And it's like a bunch of 13-year-olds. It's just like it would just never happen now. But um, it's just fun to kind of relive those. But I think you're right with like the casting part is why so many of these stories can't happen. Like Hakeem Olajuwon. His story is amazing. It's a hundred percent a movie. Like he's playing soccer in Nigeria and somebody sees how good his feet are and they convert him to basketball comes over here. He's at the university of Houston. But like, how do you cast that movie? He's the seven foot gazelle. You're yeah. not finding an actor, you know, at least like Ali is about as far as you could push it when they got Will Smith. And even that, it was like the Ali shadow hung over. Ali was such like an indelible character. It was hard to even think of somebody playing him in a movie. Yeah. I mean, I got this theory that anyone can be an actor. People always, you know, we've worshipped for a while now sort of movie stars and and as it's sort of it's a rare, a rare talent. And and there's some people like Will Smith who are just incredibly watchable and likable and charming yeah. and talented. But I, I there are other people who have never been in anything and they're just amazing in movies. And I think it's because it's the the director knows how to 
to help them along and make them make it work. So, it, and it might be that, you know, you just have to find a guy who's seven feet tall and have a really, really good director and just, you get a fantastic Kim Olajuwon story. Um, well, the Safdie brothers did it with, uh, with the uh, uncut gems where it was supposed to be Embiid and then he couldn't do it. And they got KG and they, I thought KG was really good in that movie, whatever they tapped into his charisma and made it work. And I really felt like it was, he was acting. It was good. Yeah. yeah. Well, He's, I support your quest to come up with, um, with the next great sports movie. I'm always worried. We're just going to run out. Last thing I'll mention before we go. Um, my wife is a big crier. So we watched this movie, your new movie last night, but I didn't tell her what it was about and she had no idea. And Sometimes when she cries during a movie, I'll always look over and and I'll just start laughing and then she'll get mad, but she'll be crying. So I didn't look at her the whole movie. And then it ended and I looked at her and she, I could hear her sniffling, but it wasn't like major, like breakdown. And then I looked at her and she was like, and it just freaking waterworks. She, it just like all hit her um, at the end for some reason. Um, it's an emotional movie. I think what's interesting about a movie like this in this day and age in a movie theater, everybody tries to be kind of cool, you know, like nobody, you're around all these strangers. You kind of, you're going to rein yourself in when you're home. You just kind of, you are who you are. Right. I, I thought it was a pretty gut wrenching movie um, oh, and good. well done. Thanks man. Yeah. I don't cry though. I'm a cyborg. I, I was just, I basically just laugh at my wife when she starts crying, but it, even I was touched. What's wrong with you? I don't know. So I'm a, a kid of divorce. So, you know, we're all dead inside. <laughs> Uh, uh, um, good luck hey, with that movie. Had, uh, oh, thanks, buddy. Have you ever had um, Ham on your show? Oh yeah, he's been on, huh? Yeah. Why you get along with him? Uh, I was just thinking about who could play people. Yeah, he plays on my baseball team. He he's, so, he, he plays. So Ham and I, he's been on a few times. One of the things, the last time he was on, we were talking about how his sports movie mortality rate was about to run out. Cause he's like a really good baseball player. And it's like, you, you've got, well, I mean, for an actor, um, you've got to, you've got to do this now. Like you're going to hit a point where it's not realistic anymore that you're like the, you know, Dennis Quaid and the rookie Yeah, where Dennis Quaid was probably like 49 in real life. And it was really pushing it, but he was playing a guy who was like 39 in real life. So it was okay. But I think with Ham, Ham's think got Ham's, like a year left. Ham's no, he doesn't. He's passed. You it's think he's passed. Okay. It's expired. Yeah. It's expired. I think he he did Million Dollar Arm. He was yeah, already... Yeah, I produced that with him. That's how we got to know each other. No yeah. way. You produced yeah. that movie? Yeah. A huge thanks, movie thanks on airplanes. Thanks for bringing that to me, buddy. <laughs> huge, huge... Good. I appreciate it. Good looking out. Thanks for bringing me that. Everybody loved that movie, and then people just saw it on demand and on airplanes. And it's just like one of those things. Does yeah. didn't, It went as on the weekend against some other monster movie, and it just kind of went away. That eh, wasn't that good. Pretty decent. <laughs> it was like 15 kidding, minutes too long. I'm kidding. It was great. It was great. It looked really beautiful too. I loved it being in India. I so thought like, it was 15 minutes too long. My big argument at the time was like, if, if I'm taking my son to this, it can't be more than two hours. Yeah. Like my son, this is a movie that like an eight-year-old kid could, could see, right? And yeah. no eight-year-old kid wants to be in a theater for two hours and five minutes. Yeah. You got you to gotta get through that story a little bit faster. Uh that's true. But Hammy, Hammy could do like a guy uh, who's gone to like fantasy camp, like an older man who goes down to fantasy <laughs> and rediscovered. Ham, Ham had one good year when he played with us. He, he had 400. 
That was his best year by really? far. Really? Oh, so yeah. what, what is this baseball team? Can you tell, is this is an L.A. baseball team of Hollywood people and it and it's like fast it's pitch? It's not Hollywood people. It's fast pitch. It's not Hollywood people. It just happens to have me and Ham on the team. Uh, but mostly it's made up of like guys who are real athletes. I started it about 10 years ago as like the L.A. Park and Rec League. And we were awful. We got beat there. We put the we we got a little bit better and like third year in, we won that thing. Guys wanted we won the LA City there. Then people wanted to step it up to the a wood bat league, which we did. Wood bat league, Jesus. Oh yeah. And um we we got demolished. Uh we have not yet won that uh that league. But we've had some good showings. The first season we lost, you know, most games we were mercyed. You know, it was like a, we play like seven innings. We usually it lost by, you know, 14 runs after the fifth and they just called it off or something. Second season, though, we did a lot better. Um, and I my batting average hovers around 100. And what position are you? Third base. So 100. I'm trying to think of what Red Sox player. No one has ever hit, had that bad an average <laughs> yeah, and the, stayed the, in the game. Terrible average third baseman. I, I don't know who that would be. <laughs> Uh, I had one year where I hit 300, but I only played like three games, maybe. Um, but Hammy's done. Hammy's better. He plays first, and he 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 did have one year where he hit over 400. I think all that is, is behind both of us now. Um, but next time you have an idea for a for a sports movie, don't bring it to John. Call me up. I'm gonna bring it to you. I've, I've and if you ever want to start a Triple A baseball team in the Hollywood area that we call the Hollywood stars I'm in. I've always felt like that idea could work. Put it in Van Nuys, 15,000 seat stadium. I just feel like people would go. I love it. It's not going to matter that it's 108 degrees in July. People are still going to like it. They're still going to have a good time. That's part of the fun. What was that team? Who's that guy who started that like really kind of rough around the edges uh, club, like minor league club in like Portland or somewhere? He, He had a book. There's a book written about them. That's a pretty good story. I gotta find. I don't that. know that one. Well, good yeah. luck with your movie. It was good seeing thanks, you. Thanks, man. Uh, good thanks. luck to Tom Brady, and uh, thanks for coming on. Okay, thanks for having me. All right, thanks to Casey Affleck. Thanks to Peter Schrager, the Good Luck Charm. Hopefully, the Million Dollar Picks will take it to the finish line. We'll be back Sunday night on this podcast, talking with cousin Sal and breaking down the big game. And I might drag my dad into this at the end of the pod to see what his feelings were. My dad still hasn't landed on on the Brady thing. I've never seen anyone more tortured about anything that's this stupid in, in my life. But uh, we'll be back Sunday night. Enjoy the game. Enjoy the weekend. Stay safe. See you on Sunday. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.